BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Here, Mark. You see, Mark. Here, Mark. How are you doing? I'm I'm very close to getting annoyed with you doing that. We've only been going ten seconds. No, but yeah, but the thing is, we've actually been recording for longer than that, and you we were doing you were doing this. This is you a were live... doing that thing about just you know waiting, and then I say something, and you talk across it, and it's very, very, very annoying. Secret of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So ask me what I've done this week. What have you done this week? And I'm... if it involves a live show or writing a book, you know it'll get bleeped out or bird songed out. Uh, Does it involve self-promotion or self-flagellation uh, in any way? <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think so. Do you profit materially from this next few seconds? Of- no. Okay. In which case, no. Okay, but then I will leave it to uh, to the forces that be. So, uh, William Friedkin has been in town. Bill, Billy, Billy is he? Is yeah, Bill is Blatty. Billy is Friedkin. Okay, Bill and Billy. Yeah, Bill and Billy. Yeah. So Bill's been in, and Billy hasn't been in. No, Billy no. has. Billy has been in. Billy's here. But Bill is no longer with Bill's us. Not with, <laughs> Bill's no longer with us. And Billy's been here. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so Freakin was here. And um, as you know, I'm a huge Freakin, uh, a file Freakin fan. And so I, did a, I, so I did a number of different things with him. One of which was there was a screening. So I'm not profiting from this because it's already no, happened. There good. was a screening at the Prince Charles Cinema, which, of course, you and I okay. are familiar with. Because, in fact, at one point we did a show from the Prince Charles. Do you remember that? Which Prince Charles is this? Prince Charles in Leicester Square in, in Leicester that there, Square. London. That yeah. one, I remember. That's that. right. <clears throat> and um, so they did a screening of um, To Live and Die in L.A., with and this is this is what I, this you're going to get this okay so which British pop group of the 1980s did the soundtrack Bon Jovi. Which part of Bon Jovi is British? Okay, sorry, what was the question again? It's sake, which British 80s group did? Don't tell him. Give me the full question. Which British? I know I heard Simon say it. Which British 80s group did the soundtrack for To Live and Die in LA? Is it Tight Fit? No. <laughs> no, but there's an interesting tight fit. Did you know that on that tight fit, women white? Fine. Do you know who's singing? Bloke in a vest. No, it is. No, it's not. No, that, it's... that bloke wasn't singing. He was just a guy in a vest. He was just a good-looking. Model. He was just. A, he was like the guy out of Boney M. He was just doing the dancing. No. Yes. The uh, vocals for Tight Fit's ooh 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 ooh. The lion sleeps tonight. Yeah. Were done by. Paul Da Vinci. Him from Paul the Rubettes. Well, not from the Rubettes. That's the point. That one. Yeah, but not from the Rubettes. He was never in Rubettes. He's, he did the vocal. It's his voice singing Sugar Baby Love. So that yet another hit single on which the magic larynx of Paul Da Vinci soars without him being in the group. Because they <laughs> what they did was they got they you know they decided to get a guy in a in a you know in does he do the does he do the lead vocal for We Won't Get Fooled Again by the Who as well. Because he does everything else. Yeah, he does everything. If, if there's a lead vocal that you haven't been able to identify, then that's him. Anyway, which British 80s pop group did the sound? Oh, are we still going with that? Yeah, we are. Is it China Crisis? No, but you're weirdly... You're... you're, you're, you're mm. Okay. Wang Chung. Yes, you, so you heard him yeah, say that. That's why he said China Crisis. But I was okay, beating fine. around the bush. You were beating around the bush. So Wang Chung did, did the soundtrack too. So I met Wang Chung. Funnily enough... Was, was it Mr. Wang or Mr. Mr. Chung? <laughs> I think it's Billy Wang and Bob Chung, yeah. isn't it? You know they? that it's neither of them are called Wang Chung. Oh, okay. It's Wang Chung is a phonetic description of Huang Chung, 
which was which was actually explained last night because somebody You're said making all this up. I'm not making this up. Somebody said why why is Wang Chung called Wang Chung, and um, it was explained by Jack, whose name is Jack Jack, Jack Wang. No, Jack Hughes, which is a pun name. His real name is Jeremy, but he calls himself Jack Hughes because it's Jacques. exactly. Which I thought was a great pun. Anyway, apparently Wang Chung this is a big deal. Wang for. Chung. It's not a big detour. It's the bibbly bit at the beginning of the program. Yes. Um, But I had weirdly enough met them before, just a couple of weeks ago, at Fenella Fielding's memorial, because it turned out that Nick, Nick's aunt, is the sister. Who's Nick? Nick is the other one who isn't Jack. Nick and Jack are Wang Chung. Nick Chung. (laughs) Okay. You know in The Who. Nick who isn't Jack. you You know in The Who, none of them are called Who. It's not like oh, Roger Who and Peter Who. And you know, like in the Sex Pistols, it wasn't Johnny Sex Pistol. No. Okay? It was Johnny... Rotten. Gr- Johnny Rubbish, as I think he oh, should forever, forevermore be he called. Accused me, he accused me of being too left-wing. I know. It was just... <laughs> yeah, and also he said, oh, yeah, 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 he's an outsider. I could get on with him. To which the answer was, you sad old man. Referring to either of them. either of them. Okay. Exactly. Now, where were we on this story? Wang Chung. Yeah. So Wang Chung. So anyway, Billy so Friedkin. Yeah. So I did an on stage with Billy Friedkin and Wang Chung, with a screening of To Live and Die in L.A. And also, um, I we did a, a cruising for a commentary for cruising. But um, but that was the thing, and it was great, and it went, and it was it was really good fun. Anyway, and he said to say hello. Mark in Fairham. Well, is her, any of that staying? Because it's, yeah, all I'm of not it. Selling anything. All of it is good. All of it is fine. It's comedy gold. Yeah, I think so. All of fine. it is fine. Yellow bell. Yellow bell. That's it. Yellow bell. Huang Chong means yellow bell, which is the thi- which is the thing at the center of the universe, which when rung, we are all ripples of Is this a creation myth of some kind? It's well it's a it's Was a, it true? Are you saying that it's there true. Was, there it's true. It actually is the beginning a yellow of the world. After the universe had been sneezed out of the nose of an Octurian mega donkey, yes. they rang a yellow bell, and we are all ripples in, and that's what Wang Chong, and so everybody Wang Chong tonight. Do you remember that because was there? these are all dance hall days. Dance hall days. And I saw them perform an acoustic version of Dance Hall Days. It was rather lovely. And they've just done an album with an orchestra. The Prague, the City of Prague Symphony Orchestra. Oh, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. They are here, there, and everywhere, which leads us very nicely, nicely to into our guest of, later on. Martin, Martin, Shh, this is, this is, that's why I get the top dollars. Do you get top dollars? <laughs> I read about that in the papers. <laughs> Did you? If you get more dollars than me, I'll be very cross. We should get the same dollars. <laughs> Mark in Fairham, <laughs> hoping you can help me make... I would love to get the same dollars as you. Hoping you can make some sense of something that Mark explained during last week's post-cast, post-show section of the podcast. OK. Mark described the order of proceedings which week after week seamlessly come together to make the magic that is almost so close, but not quite, the best British <laughs> podcast of 2019. Mark says Brexit has got a lot to answer for. <laughs> I have done my best to summarise Mark's words and I would like to run it past you both just to make sure I've understood it correctly. I don't like the sound of this. Am I right in thinking that the pre-show is recorded pre the post-show and pre the show and is aired pre the show and pre the post-show? The post-show is recorded post the pre-show and pre the show is aired post the pre-show and post the show. The show is recorded post the pre-show and post the post-show but is aired post the pre-show and pre the post-show. If I'm right, then maybe someone more talented than me could create a memorable ditty to help us with detainees remember the order of events. And then he tries to set all that to the tune of uh, Dry Bones, which doesn't quite work. But anyway, <laughs> but I think that's essentially, Mark, that, that is the order of, of business. It's, it's certainly mm. cleared things up for me. 
But we're going to do things in a slightly different order today. Not that anyone it concerns anyone. What's funny is I can't hear what they're saying to you, but I can hear them saying something to you. Well, OK, I'm now going to put my headphones over the microphone so that producer Simon can actually speak to everybody. OK, go on. Hello, everybody. That's, That's really creepy, isn't it? Dis- That's the voice in your head. Slightly prosaic, I thought that was. Um, what is prosaic? Yeah, sort of like a little bit. It was prose as opposed to poetry. Ooh. A little bit straightforward. What's your favourite poem? Do you know any limericks? Unremarkable. Do you enjoy a limerick? Uh, Shall I tell you my favourite limerick? There was a young woman from Twickenham. Go on. That one? No, that's it. That's... No, my favourite limerick. There was a young woman from Leeds who swallowed a packet of seeds. In a month's silly arse, she was covered in grass and she couldn't sit down for the weeds. And that's why you're a doctor <laughs> of horror fiction. <clears throat> I write to you, says Dave... From Couponophobic's Corner, a new alcove of the ever-expanding church from which I currently cower. This is not a complaint, however. At approximately nine minutes into this week's much-anticipated podcast, I needed to pause my fruit-based device and take a moment to compose myself, over on Six Music, actually, before feeling able to return to the award-winning Witterings. The reason you inadvertently triggered my Kumpunophobia. My what? Kumpunophobia. It's the fear of buttons. So oh, your, is that's actually a thing? Your in-depth chat about Simon's wow. choice of extraneous fastenings was borderline unlistenable to me. God. Your discussion of unnecessary buttons reminded me all too clearly why I despise the small, shiny, easy-to-swallow, nauseating objects. It's not how most people look at them. No. And unnecessary buttons are by far the worst. My nemesis. For years, I've suffered the taunts of friends and family, found buttons on my pillow, had them thrown at me. Yes, I hate buttons, I've explained time and time again. No, it's a real phobia. I've had to defend myself time and time again. Now, don't get me wrong. Kumpunophobia isn't as life-limiting as many other phobias, like Mark's claustrophobia or Mark's vertigo. I can and do get by. For example, when I have to wear clothing with buttons, I can and do. I don't like it one bit and rush for the nearest available T-shirt ASAP. But often even the talk of buttons makes me feel iffy. The film Coraline, while brilliant, is in the same category as Texas Chainsaw or Martyrs for me. (laughs) Oh, and most have dragged me to hell. Unwatchable. Those shirts with a little button on the back of the collar. A single lone button halfway up a sleeve. Pearly kings and queens? Why? Just why? Sorry, Dave. (laughs) But you didn't think of that. So, kumpunophobics. We are aware of that, but you know, kumpunophobics. Yeah, it's that sounds like Hakuna Matata. Yeah, which we're going to be kumpunophobics. The rest of your life, a kuba, a phonic, a kuba. <laughs> it's K O U M P and then O U N O and then phobic. K O U N K O U M P. So it could be calm, I suppose. Kampuno, kampunophobic. Anyway, yeah. I don't suppose there are a lot of kumpunophobics. It means don't worry, be happy. Exactly. I like easy to swallow. The fear, the fear of buttons is that you might easily swallow them. Yes. Which suggests that Dave might have done that once. Yes. Yeah. You don't play around with buttons. No, exactly. And I think th- there are other beautiful buttons. I know. Yeah. You're just a bit weird in, the, in your use of buttons. Max says, um, <clears throat> dear Mark, and specifically Simon, just writing to inform Simon that the film... The War of the Buttons does actually exist and it's not some fevered dream invented by an it's overworked not. and confused Kermode. I mean, what the bird song. First you send poor Mark off alone to interview Tom Hanks. Yeah. To John Lydon of movie interviewees. Um, no. I guess that what that means is it's hard to come away without something that's entertaining. But Well, you managed. 
Hey, hey. <laughs> and then you have the gall to doubt the existence of a film that the good doctor clearly thought he saw. Anyway, japes aside, and apologies to Tom, he was lovely as always, War of the Buttons was one of my favourite films from my childhood. Set in rural Ireland, it chronicles two warring tribes of children as they battle each other for pride, laughs and items of clothing. Yeah. It's both funny and poignant with its anti-war message having stayed with me to this day. Hope that clears it up and proves to the world that Mark isn't losing his marbles. There are many different versions of that same, of the story that inspired it. And um, uh, somebody wrote in saying, I can't, you know, I can't believe that, 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 that you talked about it like as if it wasn't a thing, because it was a thing. And also one of the things I remember in it is that there is a sequence of very early CG in which somebody was in the film in a state of undress who then decided afterwards that they didn't wish to be in the film in a state of undress. And so they had to be by, turned by CG into a boulder. And, and I'm not making that up either. Turned into a boulder. It's a bunch of people running in a state of undress over a hill, and one of them decided that they didn't actually want to be in that scene, and so they were turned into a boulder, something rolling. You'd have thought that might have occurred to them as they were running over the... You'd think, without but, you know... clothes on. But, you know, anyway. How do you get turned into a boulder? Well, it was it was kind of fairly early CG. I mean, nowadays, with any, you can do anything. With, you know, Andy Serkis can come into a room and say, raw, and then when you see the film, he's a... He's a... Dinosaur. Or an ape. He's or anything. I don't think he's played a dinosaur. No, although I suppose no. Has he? Who knows? It's the magic of cinema. I don't think Andy Serkis has played a dinosaur. He's played. He's he's played. Well, Gollum's not a dinosaur. No. King Kong's an ape. I mean, it's borderline, isn't it? Really. What that King Kong might be a dinosaur. Yeah, kind of has dinosaur tendencies. How long has he been? What around? you mean? He's big and he roars. Yeah, and he might have been around for a trillion years. Yeah, but the Earth's been around for a trillion years and the Earth isn't a dinosaur. I mean, you're just saying that just because something's... A, look at the sun. It's a dinosaur. Why? Well, it's been there forever. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> Have you ever heard the Bill <clears throat> Hicks sketch about dinosaurs? How's it go? It's, it's just a long routine about, about people who believe in creationism. And his answer is always, well, how do you explain dinosaurs? Because the creationists believe that the world was made, you know, in days, a, I know. And, 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 but that. something like 6,000 years ago, because they added up all the, all the days in the Bible and it came to like whatever, how many years it was. And his argument was always, okay, well, how do you explain dinosaurs? To which the answer, he said this actually happened, he said, to which the answer was, somebody said, ah, dinosaurs were put there, uh, dinosaur bones were put there by God to test whether you're a true believer. Well, it's a good test. You yes. can't really argue with that. Can After you? you die and you're flying down into the pit of hell and somebody says, what was it? You say, dinosaurs. It seemed so believable. Ah! <laughs> uh, Chris in Southampton, uh, whilst catching up with the podcast, I heard questioned what degree of peril a spider was in whilst casting a shadow on a cinema screen. Yes, because I said, because it was near to the, to the, to the, the lens of the projector. And I said, isn't that super hot? Being a digital cinema projector oh, engineer, a, okay. says Chris, I look after many projectors in, in your area, yeah. including the big one in Eastleigh. I can confirm that to cast a shadow on the screen, the spider would need to be in front of the lens, yeah. the pointy end of the projector, yeah. whilst the heat is generated by the lamp but, but, at but the, the back. By the biggie end of the Much less pointy end. Okay, yeah. This being the case, the spider would be perfectly safe right. as long as I didn't see it first. Okay, so the lens of a projector, I'm, sure, I'm sure I should know this, but the, so the lens of a projector doesn't, doesn't heat up at all, it's just the, it's the back end. It's the, it's the, no, it's because it's the lamp that heats up, which is away from the lens. And now you say it like that, I feel foolish for even asking. I've got an email 
somewhere a pretty uh, little email for the show I've got an email to last me all my life coming I've up got emails to spend and emails to lend and emails to give unto my wife let me know when you're finished anytime okay i've got an email i can't find it no so i was it's filling be in while you were fiddling and wibbling around it's gonna be in the show in a bit is it someone who has written it. to us mm -hmm. in a state of some anger someone who is annoyed with us right and they have won an oscar just saying they won an oscar just checking nick park have i annoyed nick park no that's fine that would be awful i don't think it's possible to annoy nick park because he's blissed out okay but so when you say we have annoyed someone you mean yeah, i you mean kinda. i have well no it's a sort of a collective you Why? Can't... Because we didn't... We didn't do something properly. Okay, we have to do this now because I can't do the rest of the show without worrying Simon's about who it listening. is. He's listening to Steve Wright again. Is he? Yeah. Are they, are they on the all bangers, no clangers, what do you call it, serious jockey? Yes, please. Yeah, but, yeah. Because we, I can't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it now because we're going to put it in the in 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 the show a bit later on. Okay. But we have annoyed someone. But properly annoyed or comic com comedy well, annoyed. I, in that, in that kind of grey area. <laughs> really? <laughs> what, like when you're cross with somebody, but you pretend that you're joking, but you're actually cross with them? Exactly. It's that. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. And is it, is it going to upset me? Is it Billy Freakin? It's not. No. Okay. All right. Then I'm not that upset. No. It's, it's, but they're, they're also making quite an interesting point. Anyway, it's a discussion point for later on in the Oh, show. is it? Yeah. Oh, good. Well, which, which is coming up now. Are we on now? We are definitely on. Uh, later on on the programme, you will hear from Danny Boyle and Himesh oh, Patel. Danny Boyle. That is the last time you're going to do that. No, it's Because not. otherwise it will get deeply, not gonna deeply stop. annoying. Carry on. Everybody. Because we're going to talk about yesterday. Uh, we'll do that after the 3.30 news. But before we go any further, a number of listeners have pointed out that we've been on Radio 4's feedback programme. Pardon? This is Radio 4's forum for comments, queries, criticisms and congratulations. I'm quoting here. Okay, which one of those did we, we come the, in for? Well, we were the subject of a new feature. Really? Right. Do you want to hear the highlights? Yeah. Here we go. Now, for a new feedback feature. Each week, we're asking two BBC Radio listeners to step out of their comfort zones and listen to a programme that they wouldn't normally switch on. This week we have Maggie Crissell and Peter Ward, who are going to review an episode of Commode and Mayo's film review on Five Live, broadcast on Friday the 7th of June. To get an idea of their regular listening habits, I first asked Maggie what would be her top three programmes if she were stranded on a desert island. Feedback excluded, of course. Programmes I couldn't do without would be The Archers, Private Passions on Radio 3 and Penal's Politics on Radio 5 Live. And Peter, what would be your top three? I have to listen to the Today programme. I have to listen to The Archers. Mm. And from our own correspondent and from our home correspondent are two of my favourite programmes. They're both very insightful. Mm. OK. You know what? I was listening to that first bit. Uh, the voice in my head was going, the air attack warnings. <laughs> this is the sound. Anyway, so do you want to hear what Maggie and Peter thought? Yes. Okay. The introduction to the podcast, which was just the two of them chatting about what they did at the weekend. And 
I wasn't at all engaged with that. Just on that question, Peter, could I ask you about the podcast? Um, a lot of BBC programmes are trying to do this, and the presenters at the front try and, you know, pretend that you're listening into the sort of bantering conversation that they wouldn't normally broadcast, uh, sort of create a sort of intimacy and so on. Do you think it worked on this occasion? It definitely didn't work for me. I just find that kind of thing extremely phony, and I prefer the uh, more traditional broadcasting methodology whereby the presenter has a degree of distance from the audience, which is not to say they're aloof. No, we're not aloof. No, which is not to say the presenter... He was saying that you weren't. He was saying he prefers it when the presenter has a distance from the audience, but you're not aloof enough. Anyway, then they played a clip of... What did Mr Commode think? Yeah, they are... Basic, basic rule. Get the name of the presenter right. Okay? (laughs) The air attack warnings. (laughs) Then they played a clip of Mark's review of Booksmart. Oh, yeah. Let's hear what they thought of that. Okay. It's a review programme and a discussion... Uh, do you think they do that in a way that informs those people who haven't seen what they're talking about? Yes, definitely. I mean, I haven't seen probably any of what they're talking about on Friday, and I found it very informative, amusing. I mean, I think you're listening to a real expert, listening to Mark Commode, and I thought that Simon Mayo did a good job in facilitating that skill and, and allowing it to come over. I think Mark Commode's an absolute star. Indeed, I'd say that Mark Mode in particular is an expert and he uh, dispenses his knowledge and his enthusiasm in an extremely accessible way. Kermode, Kermode, Kermode. What was it? You are an, you're an, 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 not an accessory. What, what, did they, what was the word? You're a, a facilitator. Simon, and, and there <clears throat> endeth the, the... You are an excellent facilitator. Anyway, they then oh, listened... My to my interview with Sophie Turner and Jessica Chester. Oh, yes, because you did something on that programme as well. I did. OK. So it's a difficult thing to negotiate this interview to make it other than a public relations puff for the film in question. Do you think they do with that problem reasonably well? Well, certainly in terms of that interview, they did an absolutely splendid job. And they did bring out various uh, issues to do with, for example, not filming in Georgia. That was very significant. And they also talked about the stereotypical nature of the superhero. And both of these issues were dealt with. It sounded to me like a perfectly honest and spontaneous response from both of those film stars. And I thought that particular segment was extremely interesting and uh, I very much welcomed it. Simon, you did brilliantly. Thanks very much indeed. What? That's what they just said. Anyway, he, what... said, he said he enjoyed that segment very much and he said then you got to the bottom of the thing. And so the main... So, okay, so what I take away from that is the stuff at the beginning, they're not crazy about, but when we get down to the <clears throat> the meat, the meat and potatoes of the programme, it's a big thumbs up. Anyway, this is what they thought of the format. Any thoughts about the format, uh, Maggie? Would you alter it in any way or do you think they've got it, got no, it pretty much right? No, I like the format. I like the run down the top ten. I thought that was really good. And then the new releases, I like the fact they covered, you know, what films are on the telly. My impression of the show was that it had considerable pace, and I think that it benefited from that. So I like the format. OK, well, I'm warming to Maggie, but here's the million-dollar question. Can I just uh, say, Peter? I think I might, but if I listen to the podcast, I'll use the facility to wind forward 20 minutes to uh, get rid of the stuff I found tedious. Uh, Maggie, will you listen again? Yes, a good thing to listen to in the car. No, I would listen to. I I thought it was good. So it's not an appointment to listen for you, but it's certainly a pleasure. Yeah, Yeah, I'd agree with that too, yes. Maggie and Peter, thank you very much. 
Okay, Maggie and Peter, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. The whole point of the chatty bit of the podcast is that's what podcasts are for. That is what, I don't think they kind of, they're not natural podcasters. No, but you have to do the thing, but you have to hear the positives. You know, have you heard this thing about a compliment sandwich? No, they're not words I've ever heard before. Okay, it's a thing, right? If you're going to, I learned this from the good lady professor, her indoors. If you're going to tell somebody that, oh, that something that is that is that you're that you're criticising, what you do is you start by saying something that you like, and then you do the criticism, and then you say the thing you like. It's called a compliment sandwich. So you say, um, "I thought that film was really great," and uh, no, I, I thought the film was really adventurous, and I thought you did uh, took on a lot of interesting subjects. I think that sequence with him coming back, yes, we could have lived without. But you know, at the end of it, I was really so. It's a compliment sandwich. So you 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 put the. So we really like that interview that you did mm. on the show yesterday. By the way, you're fired. Yes, However, right. <laughs> would you like? But I thought then the you know the way you yeah. rounded up was was good. But I just think you're excellently facilitating my 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 starriness. Thank you. I that's it is my job. It's the choric role. That's what that's, I have. I mean, what was you know Johnny Thingy Bob said that all those years ago, Johnny Rotten, Johnny Johnny Rotten. <laughs> Um, <laughs> hey, hey, my, my. Talia Baker, Second French Horn, Barnet School's Wind Orchestra, 84 to 88. Oh, hang on, we might have crossed paths. After reports of spotting as Bill Nye, I feel compelled to write in, till recently on my daily walk from St Pancras Station to my place of work. I very often used to see Mr Nye eating breakfast, sitting outside his regular cafe. Sometimes on my journey home, I'd pass him sitting outside another eatery, always the same one. And occasionally, at lunchtime, I'd see him outside a third cafe, right opposite my office. It wasn't at all unusual for me to see him twice in the same day, and more than once I scored a hat-trick, which led me to wonder if one of us was stalking the other. As it seemed unlikely that he'd be stalking me, I asked myself if in some weird way I could be unwittingly stalking him. Just in case, I'm not going to tell you what he has for breakfast, though I suspect I'd soon crack under pressure. I recently moved workplace, losing my lovely walking commute, along with the frisson of my daily game of Spot Bill. So in order to see him again, I'm going to have to go and see. All best wishes, as ever. So if anyone has seen Bill Nye recently, we'd like to pass that on to Talia, who's missing him very much. Yes. And I imagine he was sometimes, always, never in the clothing department. More of which in a moment. Oh, great. Box office top 10, at 25, The Captor. Yeah, which, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it's gone in uh, number 25. Originally it was called um, uh, Stockholm, and it is a dramatisation of the bank heist, which led to the expression the Stockholm Syndrome. There are some interesting things in it. Obviously it plays very, very fast and loose with the truth, and it has that kind of comedic documentary you know you know you know there's reality in the background but it's done as a comedy that actually made me think i would really like to see a documentary about this that said if you just go along with it and think okay i understand that it's playing fast and loose with the truth this isn't actually how things went down it's worth it for the performances because the performances are pretty good nathan hawk is terrific as indeed is mark strong if any listeners want to... As indeed is, is Numi Rapace. Actually, uh, Adrian on this email says, the joke in Die Hard is that the expert being interviewed on TV doesn't call it Stockholm No, syndrome, that's right. Or rather, Helsinki, Helsinki syndrome, syndrome, following which the anchorman compounds the error by so telling the named, camera... Named after the... As tel- in Helsinki, Sweden. Yeah, Thanks, exactly. Adrian. Yeah. By the way, if anyone wants to listen to feedback, review it and send it to us, that would be fine. Thank you very much. Yeah. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Uh, at... <laughs> is it, are you stung? 
At 10, John Wick, Chapter 3. Still like it the best of all the John Wicks. Child's Play is at number 9. Who knew mm. that Mark Hamill doing the voice of Chucky could be quite so much fun? Um, I know that there is a huge amount of affection for the original series of movies and because people feel connected to those films, some of which were okay, some of which were rubbish and some of which were actually pretty good, um, this feeling about that, you know, it's a new start with different people and, uh, you know, Mancini feels that he's been sort of badly treated. But if you put all that aside and go, okay, if you were going to update the Charles Play series, rather than doing the, the spirit of a of deceased uh, serial killer, what, what would you do? And you'd do AI. And so it's like bad... AI, in which what uh, the Buddy doll, who calls himself Chucky, wants is just to play and be a real boy, except it involves knives. Uh, Philip says, Dear Andy and Chucky, I'm a long-term listener, short-term emailer, and have a second-time emailer, indeed, and have recently converted my now fiancé to the church after years of attempts. She now listens to your dulcet tones while she operates on animals, but that's a different story. I studied film in Ireland, and after moving to the west coast of Canada almost two years ago, found myself working on films, the first of which, as a naive camera trainee, was the reboot of Child's Play. Oh, well, wow. It was a lot of fun to make, and to hear that you liked it is such a relief. Oh, great. Yeah, I did. I enjoyed it much more than I thought it was going to. In fact, funnily enough, that Bear McCreary music for it is particularly creepy. Honky. No, 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 it's not honky. It is all Brahmsy. Big and noisy. The Bear McCreary score for Charles Play. Isn't everything that Bear McCreary is quite Brahmsy? No, no, no. I mean, Brahmsy, you said, was, was a fr- phrase that was coined for Hans Zimmer. Yes, that Go- kind of going the full honk Queen Mary docking sound. Yeah, no, but it's the <laughs> that's, right. that's what it's, it's the it's the thing when they do the kind of the nurse. You I you are my buddy. You're my best friend. That kind of crack nursery rhyme thing. I thought was rather rather well done. Rather Chris Gemmell says I went in to see this movie with zero expectations, and I was correct. Uh, the rehashing of a classic story was clumsy, overcomplicated, introducing a Stranger Times crew to fight the doll, even in the violent gore scenes, trying to get a comedy shot included the effects of... Uh, anyway, the CGI looked lazy and poorly cut together. Avoid this like the plague. Simon Humphrey... Well, that, that, I think, is a classic case of, of somebody who is attached to the originals. Who, who does, and there is a large... Um, hinterland of people who 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 will feel that same way because of the. But I was never that attached to the originals, and I'm a huge Brad Dourif fan. But you know, X Men Dark Phoenix is at number eight. As I think we established when we reviewed it the first time round, it's all about the writing, and the writing ain't great. Casino Royale Secret Cinema is at number seven. It's interesting, isn't it, to think that. We now are in the process in which they're making what purports to be the last Daniel Craig Bond movie. Mm-hmm. I know they kind of said that last time, didn't they? With the but, but it's actually sort of happening now. So that so this next movie should, in theory, bring to a close the cycle of movies that began with the Casino Royale um, Bond reboot. But whether it whether it will or not remains to be seen. Sean Drummond has been to see Casino Royale in at this, Secret Cinema. At Secret Cinema, yeah. Um, if I'm not allowed to give details, I'll just say it's an exciting, interesting and immersive experience that all film fans should try. If I'm allowed to expand on this, I can highly recommend the secret cinema experience. They fully commit to the theme, dress a large warehouse space as if you're in the movie, have lots of actors' uh, roles before and during the movie and really enhance your enjoyment of the film. OK. Keep up the good work. In the current climate, we all need sane witterings of the nation, leading 
nation's leading programme to remind us not to take life too seriously. By the way, on the subject of secret cinema, if anyone ever suggests a midsummer secret midsummer. cinema, count me out. <laughs> where would you do it? Where in Britain? Sweden. No, no, you'd have to do it in, if you had to do it in the UK, where would you suggest? Cornwall. Croydon. Croydon. <laughs> Never. Not doing it. Milton Keynes. Um, so yeah, Casino Royale is at seven. Secret Life of Pets is at six. Better than the well, Secret Life of Pets 2 is at six, which I was going to say is better than the Secret Life of Pets. But if you just say the Secret Life of Pets, it means that I can't do that. That's, that's, tr- a, that's a production. It is a productionary. You see, this is the kind of shoddy production in which the two is on a different line. And it's not Simon's job to be as confused as Nigel. All right. You have to put that on the same line. Uh, number five. Number, <laughs> number five is Brightburn. I like Brightburn. Um, I was surprised by how much I liked it. I have read some very sniffy negative reviews about it, but it's essentially, you know, the dark matter version of uh, of, of the Superman superhero story. And what's interesting is the way in which it plays with with iconography. There's a couple who are, you know, desperate to have a child, and then a something crashes in their garden. Then we cut forward, and they have an adopted child who's the absolute love of their life, and yet somehow is not like other kids. And it's that story about you know with great power comes great responsibility. But what happens if if that actually turns in it, that takes a left turn and turns into Carrie rather than turning into Superman? Uh, Stephen Gillespie says, I saw Brightburn last night, felt compelled to write in after Mark's pretty positive review. Brightburn is a film that thinks its premise is shocking and subversive when it's actually pretty empty and dated. It's a film that takes itself far too seriously and ends up as irritatingly edgy, stumbling around for 90 minutes with nothing interesting to say outside of it's Superman, but evil. Uh, (laughs) Simon uh, Anlazak says, I saw Brightburn back when it was released in Australia with some trepidation. The trailer showed a lot of promise, but its general reception seemed to be mixed to negative. But I seem to be on the same wavelength as Mark on this one. It was an interesting, effective horror film with a much nastier edge than expected. It has a slasher film structure grafted onto the Superman backstory, but it's much more the former than the latter. I'm surprised, however, that with all the films Mark name-checked in his review, he didn't mention Lynn Lynn Ramsey's We Need to Talk About Kevin, because this is pretty much We Need to Talk About Clark Kent, and I don't think I'm the first person to come up with that. Okay, and the reason I specifically didn't do that is because absolutely We Need to Talk About Kevin is not about Kevin. And I say this having just watched We Need to Talk About Kevin within the last couple of months. Um, And it's funny how the more you watch it, the more you realise it's nothing to do with... It's not... It's it's actually we don't need to talk about Kevin. It's we need to talk about Tilda. Uh, Terry says, Feels like I watched a completely different film to Mark. Went in with plenty of interest in the premise and came out very disappointed. There wasn't... A study of character. The boy just got possessed by his one, and that's it. He became a super <laughs> for the remainder of the runtime with no questioning of his actions or morality. Was hoping for something at least memorable. Okay, I don't think that's true. I think that um, <clears throat> I think the character development is better than that. <clears throat> and I think, but I do, I do think that it's one of those movies that if you if you lost patience with it, or if you lost empathy with it, or whatever you know then it then it would very quickly become annoying but i didn't and i was surprised by the fact that i didn't um and i was surprised by how much i enjoyed it so rocket man is at number 4 we know what we think about this yeah, however do. yeah we get to this point in the program okay where we have an admonishment oh, an admonishment an admonishment from the golden globe bafta and academy award winning writer of the full monty 
Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, Battle of the Sexes, 127 Hours, and Slumdog Millionaire. Okay, Simon Beaufort. Simon Beaufort. He has a few words to say. Okay. He says, I am becoming one of those angry old men who shout at the radio. I found myself shouting at you both, apologies, I like your programme, on Friday, as you lauded Dexter Fletcher and Taron Egerton, and, as ever, neglected to praise the person who did almost all the creative work, the writer. Lee Hall did the research, found the story to tell, shaped the character arcs, set the scenes and wrote the dialogue that made you laugh and cry. Taron didn't do that. Dexter didn't do that. They came along when the truly creative heavy lifting had been done by an amazingly talented writer and he didn't even get a name check. When did you last have a writer on your show to discuss how a film got made? Unlike directors or actors, the writer is not a replaceable adjunct to a movie. The writer's vision is at the very heart of a film, the storyteller, the reason there is a film at all. Without writers, directors and actors would literally have nothing to do. Nothing. I know I'm getting shouty again, but why is this not appreciated? But this happens almost all the time when reviewers, even you clever chaps, discuss film. Never mind the degrading nature of writers being continually ignored while people fawn over directors. It's just factually wrong to attribute so much of what happens in a movie to somebody who often comes in very late in the process and in reality has little influence on the final film. Rant over. Simon Beaufoy. P.S. Oddly, none of the above applies applies to Danny Boyle, who is on a different plane altogether and should really have the credit <laughs> of visionary. OK. Um, if I didn't in that review say, Lee Hall, because I thought I had made the comparison... I think with- in the probably when we were doing the first original review, review he would have been mentioned. OK. But often in the, when we're doing the kind of roundups in the top ten. Right. I definitely did in my written review in The Observer, and I understand entirely why uh, Simon would be uh, outraged if that didn't happen. I am surprised if it didn't, Simon, because I am very conscious of the fact that it was that it was written by, uh, by Lee Hall. So I am genuinely, if we absolutely did not mention Lee Hall, and I take as your, you know, you're, you would be more attuned to this than I'm, but I do, I do try to be better about crediting writers, not least because I have been picked up about this before by writers who completely correctly say that all film critics think that the directors are... I mean, I was talking to somebody who's a production designer recently, and they said, in terms of film critics, if it's to do with um, something that somebody says, they credit the actors. If it's to do with the way something looks, they credit the cinematographer. And if it's to do with the way something is, they credit the director. And he said they don't ever credit the production designers. And it is definitely true that writers um, are, you know, are, get a bad... And, and if I genuinely didn't, Simon, then I apologise wholeheartedly. I had thought that we hadn't because I am conscious of the fact that, that that he did write it, and I definitely did. I guess what happens, room. but but you know, but, we, but that's it. That it, it is it is a perfectly fair point that more credit needs to be given to screenwriters than is given. And I know that Empire have actually you know addressed this problem. I know that a number of uh, major film critics have ad- have addressed it, and obviously more needs to be done. But it's a perfectly valid point, and I am very happy to be told off by Simon Beaufoy. Uh, the, yes, and uh, as are we both. And I, my guess is, and I haven't li- listened back to all of it, is that in the original review, you did mention it. And then in our breezy top 10 countdown, it would be easier to mention Taron Egerton and easier yeah, to yeah, mention yeah. Dexter Fletcher but it, but, but it, than to go back to the But if I writer. didn't, Simon, you're absolutely right. That is a, a grotesque oversight. Well, why don't we make a pledge to mention the screenwriter every time? Okay, well, I will try. 
I mean, I, I will try and I'm sure I'll fall short of the mark in the same way that I say special effects when I mean visual effects. Yes. And I'm sure it's really annoying, but I am trying. I'm still trying. I'm still very trying. You are very trying. And if you are an Oscar winner, feel free to contact the show and criticise us. Um, uh, so that's Rocketman at four, Men in Black's at three, Aladdin's yeah. at two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Toy Story is at number one. Okay, fine. So you you have a whole swathe, swath. Yes. I mean, to be honest, we'll just t- touch the surface. And okay. because of the subject matter yeah. of Toy Story, a lot of people have got yeah. various things to say. Anyway. He's just said in my ear, Toy Story 4. You're apparently, not only are we ignoring writers, but you're ignoring numbers. Saves time. <laughs> Does it? All yeah. right. Now it's taking up a whole lot of time. Toy Story 4. Okay. George Anderson. As soon as the breezy, adventurous music kicked in, every preconception I'd had instantly became a thing of the past. I had a great time. Very funny, extremely entertaining, a feast for the eyes in both detail and energy of the animation. I wasn't as moved by the ending as the rest of my family, but I still found it to be a nice moment. If Toy Story 3 was the grand finale, then 4 is a really nice epilogue where we get to see the characters again in a simpler, smaller scale adventure. A great note for Pixar to end the decade on. Uh, Claire says, on last week's show, you were discussing the layers people find in Toy Story. Well, as you and also uh, for Rocketman. Yeah. Um, I have a tattoo of Buzz Lightyear. This is because when I got together with my husband to be, we used to say to infinity and beyond as our way of saying I'll be with you forever. Sadly, in 2010, my husband got idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and went to the beyond three years later so i subsequently got the tattoo as a way of indicating to infinity and beyond still held true so at 11 a.m this morning i sat down to toy story 4 my first post-husband with some trepidation were they about to destroy everything this perfect trilogy meant to me the answer is a definite no the animation was as breathtaking as ever and the story about second chances and making different plans to what you thought your future was going to be might as well have been written specifically for me. Particularly the bit about finding someone new if I always sat on the shelf. Then came the closing scenes and suddenly I found a tear trickling down one cheek and then another tear rolling down the other cheek and then they ended it all with that line, which I don't know what it is because I still haven't seen it yet and you're not going to tell us that's fine. I couldn't contain myself any longer. I was an absolute mess by a kid's film as well. So in my book, Toy Story is no longer the perfect trilogy, but the perfect quadrilogy. I can only thank all of those concerned. And on behalf of me and my husband, declare Toy Story, we love you to infinity and beyond. What can you do with that? Well, well, that's, yeah. Thank you so much. What a beautiful email. And there are, we'll try and include as many Toy Story reviews as we can. But as I said, a lot of them are very long because... As a testament, I mean, that's the power of Rocketman and the power of Toy Story is people go, I saw that. I enjoyed all the bits that you enjoyed, but it meant this, all these yeah, yeah, yeah. extra things because of what we've gone through. Yeah, absolutely. So, Claire, thank you very much, Steve, for the email. We will try and do some more Toy Story throughout the show, but we have some other big things to talk about, particularly yesterday. And uh, Mark has got a whole list of movies which he would like to review in this is the list. Yes, well, I'm going to be reviewing In Fabric, which is a new film by Peter Strickland. I'm going to be reviewing Apollo 11, which is a documentary about the landing on the moon. I'm going to be reviewing Support the Girls, which is one of the films that turned up in Barack Obama's list of his favourite films of 2018. But before we do any of that... Before we do any of that, let's talk about yesterday. And I spoke to Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. Who is the director, stop it. And the star, Himesh Patel, who plays Jack Malik. You'll hear from them in just a moment after this clip, which also features Lily James. Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be 
There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I said something wrong. Now I long for yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? And that's a clip from yesterday. I'm delighted to say that Danny Boyle, its director, is back on the show. Hello, Danny. Hello again, Simon. Nice to see you. And Himesh Patel, who plays Jack Malik, is here as well. Hello, Himesh. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we heard you in that clip, we heard you singing yesterday and then Lily James off the back saying, wow. When did you write that? Exactly. <laughs> I love how she delivers that line. It's brilliant. It is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It's the f- and that's the first time where we get a hint of where we are with the story, the fact that the, that the people that you're singing it to have never heard of it before. So, Danny, just tell us where the idea of this... It's interesting that bit you talk about, because the two women in it, um, Sophia and Lily, they're both moved almost to tears by the song. And there is that melancholy in their work, the Beatles' work, as well as the joy and the wonderful melody of it. There's a, a sub-note of melancholy in there as well, which like, moves them to tears about regrets, about their past or whatever it is that they're thinking about. Anyway, yeah, um, which is one of the wonderful things about their music, I think, and lifts it out of so many other comparisons, like you can't compare them to ABBA, say. Because people say, could you do it with any other group? But in our case, we're doing it, the Beatles have been erased from everybody's consciousness, memory, records. There's nothing on Google. There's no vinyl. There's no CDs. Nobody knows who you're talking about when you mention Ringo Starr. So it's like, except this guy. There's one unsuccessful singer-songwriter, and how useful that he is one of those, um, who actually does remember them or tries to recall them and begins to play them. And you're never quite sure, is he just doing the job on behalf of the public? you know, to kind of rescue these great masterpieces? Or is he doing it in order to further what has been up until then a pretty stalled career? Whatever. He becomes, in John Lennon's phrase, more popular than Jesus as a result of it. So it's it's a sort of classic what if. Yeah, absolutely. setup. Okay. What was the audition like? The audition was a delight, really. I did a tape and then Danny and Richard decided they wanted to meet me. So I went to, what was it, the Jerwood space, were we? That's where yes, we met was, for the first it, yeah. time. And I was terrified, of course, uh, you know. What's on the tape? What's on your... The tape was a, a Coldplay song. That was the instruction on the first email, a Coldplay song. And I did We Never Change. And so I, I did that in a, in a monologue from a play and I sent that off. So we met at the Jerwood space. And I was very nervous because I didn't know what to expect. Of course, I was meeting two titans of cinema, you know, and people I admired very much. But I realised I had to just enjoy it. Otherwise, if I was going to let the fear of it take over, I wouldn't have done a good job for one. And what did you have to do? I had to sing two songs from, from the script, which I had then read, and some scenes, I think two or three scenes. So I sang Yesterday, and I sang Back in the USSR, which got oh. Danny on his feet dancing around. So, Danny, what were you looking for? By that stage, I had a slight fear that the number of Beatles songs wouldn't be sustainable because all the guys that we'd seen up until that point, some of whom were really wonderful players and singers, the songs felt not... 
I mean, they're amazing songs, but you thought, are you going to really bear 17 of them without any change into somebody else's music or anything? Even though the Beatles stuff is obviously enormous inbuilt variety within their catalogue. But I began to worry it was going to be a bit karaoke. And what it needed was a bit of soul, really. And what I was referring to earlier, the melancholy, you need to touch on that, not just the brightness of them. You need to touch that. And he did yesterday beautifully. And then he did USSR. And you know they're the rock and roll kings as well, you know. And they're one of the few groups that punk rock never slagged off because, of course, punk rock, in a way, benefited from Helter Skelter or back in the USSR. Anyway, he did his own acoustic version of USSR and I had me bouncing around the room. And I just thought, I know those songs aren't his, but they feel like they're his. And therefore, let's cast him. And it was just like, when casting's like that, it's so great because you just don't have any doubts. You go, it's him. And it's almost like it casts itself, really. Yes, it's a great bit of casting because your voice, whether you're singing a George song or a John song or a Paul song, yeah. you nail it every single time. And Thank you. In the film, you're kind of doing an interpretation of the songs. You're not doing a karaoke. You're not trying to be the Beatles because, of course, no one in the film knows what the originals sound like. So what was your brief? What were you trying to do? The brief was, of course, to create our own versions of the songs because as you say they don't exist so we can't be beholden to the originals because Jack wouldn't have that reference you know he wouldn't be able to go how exactly was it I let me imitate it you know he can only really go by what's in his miraculously is in his head still so it was a really fun two months of improving my guitar playing and my piano playing quite a lot um, and creating our own versions of the songs so I was working with Daniel Pemberton our composer and um, his friend Ardem Milhan who's a musician we came together for about two months and we were you know improving my my skills and getting the songs to what they were talking to Danny about them and going well, how's this Danny saying well this is how it's probably going to fit into the narrative and that kind of thing and they naturally just became something different sometimes because it's just me and a guitar sometimes you know just me and a piano sometimes we had a ukulele band so here comes the sun things like that but what you realize is that these songs what's magic about them is that you strip them back to the handful of chords that they are and they're still amazing and so you can do all this stuff with them you can add ukuleles to them you can have it just one person and a guitar and there's still something so amazing about them and that's kind of what I learned about the songs in doing it. Danny music has always been a part of what you do you've always cared passionately about yeah. the music that's in your films also Richard Curtis famous for loving pop music yeah. and having pop music researchers at the end of the phone anytime he <laughs> wasn't so you're a perfect team in a way it's strange it's taken you so long to work together. It is isn't it because people say oh you're an odd couple and then you go, well, actually, our love of music is, some, is absolutely... I mean, we will make films built around music, both of us. And we both also stayed at home and stayed obsessed with homegrown music as well. So it's the fact that Richard wrote this idea, I think, brought us together. Because we'd done a bit on the Olympics together, so we'd become friends through that. And then he, was, and then he got this idea from this guy, Jack Barth the original idea, and then because he is an absolute fanatic about the Beatles, Richard set off to write it. And I think, reading between the lines, he didn't want the responsibility of directing it because I think he feels he's too close to their work in a way. And the, so, I, so he sent it to me and I went, as soon as I read it, it was a bit like the casting. They're the easiest decisions to make. You just go, I'll do it. And then we'll work everything out afterwards because you just think... 
why has nobody done that before? Yeah. Straight away, you just think, and what a lovely conceit to kind of have this double helix of a love letter to the music and a love letter from, ironically, Ellie, his manager, friend, to him, saying, why don't you love me? And that's ultimately his Was destination. Was the first thing that you did get permission and clearance to use the songs because if they'd said no you genuinely wouldn't have had a film i know you're absolutely right there and you've got to do working title who produced it of course are the most experienced the most prodigious company that we have producing films in britain and they knew to make a rock solid deal and a very clever one i mean very expensive one but a very clever one with the with apple and sony whereby we were allowed to use any word between 15 and 18 songs but they weren't nominated they could be any from the catalog they could be well known ones or not so well known ones and that gave us enormous freedom to bend anything towards himesh's strengths or whoever was going to play the part at that stage and change during the filming and during the post during the editing even and we changed some at quite the last minute to keep the mix fresh of Beatles music in it. Um, Ed Sheeran is in this this movie plays a very important role playing himself that actually I think that's quite difficult we talk about on the show there's a there's a movie came out a few years ago in which Gordon Ramsay is in it and he has to play himself and he's terrible you know <laughs> so actually playing yourself is actually quite tough just explain a little bit about where Ed comes into the story and how he comes knocking on your door and so on so it's quite early on when Jack has just started experimenting with the Beatles songs that he knows and he puts out an EP and he and he goes on the telly and performs a song and then he gets a call and it's a guy saying that it's Ed Sheeran and Jack doesn't believe him but then Ed Sheeran turns up at his front door <laughs> and the support act has dropped out of Ed Sheeran's Moscow gig and would Jack like to be the support act and next thing you know Jack's playing a very appropriate song in front of a Moscow crowd and Ed kind of just sees that takes him under his wing and yeah Jack starts flying in the same way that Ed did we should mention that your parents, played by Sanjeev Bhaskar and Mira Sale, yes. Sanjeev of this programme, mm. who stands in for me sometimes when I'm not around. It's one of my favourite scenes is when your play is so natural, it's everyone will relate to what it's <laughs> trying to impress your parents. Yeah. And there you are singing. What's the song that you're trying to sing them? Uh, in the scene, it's called Leave It Be. Right. Actually, yeah. Okay. Um, and and they're not really they're not really that interested. <laughs> <laughs> Phone goes and so on. But but they're they're terrific fun. They're brilliant. And it was so nice to get to work with them finally. I'd met them a few times along the years. I mean, they're fantastic. And their work was very inspirational and, to and, me growing up. And the fact, one of the thoughts that occurred to me just walking out of the film, is that your ethnicity is not referred to at all. No. At any stage. No, no, you're no. just You're just Jack. Just Jack, yeah. I mean, that, and that's a, that's a huge step in a way, but not one I, I think that was consciously made. As far as I know, the, the casting net was cast wide. They weren't looking specifically to tick any boxes or anything like that. I just happened to be the right guy for the part. But that's, that's a, a huge step that... That the, the net was cast wide to begin with, and then the person who gets the part happens to be of, of minority ethnicity, and then now we have someone of that ethnicity playing a role like this, and that's a step forward. I think that's the way things need to continue. You're smiling, Danny. Yeah, no, there, there is a great gag. There is one gag right at the end of the film where, they, where he tries <laughs> <laughs> at the marketing meeting and meetings, yes. which is in Los Angeles, and they they won't consider the White Album as a ti- as a possible title <laughs> yeah. because they considered it. <laughs> to- Didn't we impro that? My response on the day, I think I we went. Did. We have to change this. Yeah, and I changed it. And he's kind of says you can't call it the White Album, and I said. How is that a problem? Yeah. There's some big live scenes at Wembley, which I w- imagine would phase some people, Danny, but when you've already mentioned 2012, <laughs> when you've done the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, <laughs> there is nothing that is going to phase you. I had a great cinematographer, this guy Chris Ross, 
who, when he, he's an engineer as well as a cinematographer. And when you set him a problem like that, which is how are we going to shoot the Ed Sheeran concerts? Because Ed had given us permission to shoot his crowd and blend them with Himesh's performance, which of necessity um, are going to happen, going to be recorded through the night after everyone's gone home. And Wembley, it's, provided we turn the sound down, Wembley will allow us to keep filming. And this guy, Chris Ross, worked out this plan. Now, I get all the credit for it, but it's actually, it's he that worked out the plan of how to cover this and shot it brilliantly. And it's a memory I'll never forget of him alone in Wembley. Wembley Stadium is a lonely place without 80,000 people. When there's like 15 of you there and he's singing on his own at a turned down volume rate, but pretending there are 80,000 people screaming at him at the same time. I'll never forget that. Danny, when you were on the show last, you said that you thought the media had an overly dark narrative of world events. And I wondered, actually, if in some way this film is part of a reaction to that. I mean, it's a, it's a light, positive, this is a good thing. People will walk out of a Danny Boyle film feeling good yeah. and inspired. It, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, also, it's a faithfulness towards the Beatles' philosophy, really, which remained about love and self-expression, really. And that's one of the things they changed in our world. I think, and is something that will sustain us after some of the bad guys have hopefully disappeared. That there's something where it's about not going to war. It's about actually enjoying each other's presence for the time that we have together, really. And they really champion that, both as kids. Because remember, I think they went to Oklahoma, didn't they, when they were just the boy band? And there was a segregated audience. Yes. And Lennon said, we're not playing. Mm. I don't care. It's in the Ron Howard film. Yeah, it's, I don't it's care. In that we're not playing. We're not playing. You can have the money back. And so they desegregated the audience. But from then, when they were just kids standing up for what they believed in, principles, to later when they became articulate spokesmen in their different songs and, and then in their individual careers, there's something to aspire to in what they still allow us to dream about, really, which is about improving our world. Himesh, briefly, what are you doing next? What do we see you I'm in doing next? the Aeronauts um, with Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones. That's coming out towards the end of the year. And, yeah, I'm very excited for people to see that. Danny, can you tell us anything about your next project? Well, we've got, we're trying to get the life rights of these two guys. And it's tricky. I can't mention it until because otherwise the price will go up. <laughs> I mean, for this story, which is a great story, but we have to get the life rights. And, of course, everybody's got a lawyer these days who's just like, like no fool. And they're probably listening to the Simon Mayo show going, hmm, <laughs> I wonder if he's talking about us, should we put the prize up? Who, who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Jason Isaacs. Uh, of course. Uh, Danny Ball, Himesh Patel, thank you so much. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Credit to Himesh Patel for Very coming good. up with the Jason Isaacs Very reference. Good. Uh, in there. So this so is welcome Simon, to the Simon Mayer show. Simon Mayer show. Listen, if that's what Danny Boyle wants to call it, I'm oh, not going to correct Boyle. him, am I? I'm not going to. No, of course you're not. E- egotistical. I could listen to Danny Boyle talk about anything. He's just he's such a he's got that Tom Hanks thing. He's such a passionate believer in everything that he yeah. comes on to to talk about. He's and he has been like that since the days of you know of train spotting and, you know, Miss Rose Versions and Shallow Grave and all that stuff. He's always been like that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work out who who would that pair of guys be whose life story he's trying to... Well, I can only think of Simon and Garfunkel, but... Or you and... You no, know, you. I'm, and... Apparently I don't feature in this. Thanks, oh. Danny, incidentally, <laughs> who I just saw just the other week and pretended like, you know, but yeah, he's no He's already thanks. forgotten you. Yeah, he has. Already thrown away like an old shoe. Yesterday is the new Danny Boyle film written by Richard Curtis. Thank you very much.
take it away. Okay. Well, the first thing to say is that although it is directed by Danny Boyle, it, I do think of it as unfilmed to Richard Curtis, and not just because Danny Boyle just said this was the Simon Mayo show. Um, because uh, as uh, as he said in that, it came from an idea by Jack Bath, that then Richard Curtis and Jack Bath uh, credited, both credited with story, and Richard Curtis is the screenwriter. And this isn't just incidentally because of the email that we have from Simon Beaufoy. When I was watching it, I was thinking this is the best directed Richard Curtis film I have ever seen because the DNA of that story of the you know of the, the of the whole setup is so absolutely Richard Curtis. So as you said in that interview, the story is. Uh, Himesh Patel, who is in in this really, I think, star-making turn, genuinely star-making turn as as Jack Malik, um, who uh, at a moment of a worldwide power outage, which lasts about 12 seconds, gets hit by a bus, wakes up and realises that nobody in the world remembers the Beatles other than him. And there's some sort of uh, funny knockabout slapstick stuff when he goes and looks up the Beatles on the internet and all he can get is stuff about Beatles and stag Beatles. And then he starts looking up other bands like Rolling Stone. Oh, no, they still exist. And some other, and then there's a gag which I'm not going to spoil because one of the temptations when you're reviewing a Richard Curtis film is just immediately to start reciting the gags that made you laugh. Many of them are in the trailer, incidentally, but I'm not going to start doing that. So after a brief wrestling with this country, he suddenly realises that his career of being a singer-songwriter can be infinitely aided by the fact that he can now pass off these songs as his own. And, of course, what then starts to happen is two things. Firstly, on the one hand, people recognise that these songs that he's writing are absolutely brilliant when he first plays Yesterday and Lily James's character, who is essentially, up until that point, she's she's his manager, she's his roadie, she's his best friend, and it's clear from the beginning of the film that there is more to that relationship than that, but she's the person who has stood by him. And um, and she says, when did you write that? And he said, I didn't write that. Paul McCartney wrote it. Who, probably from the Beatles. Who are the Beatles? And so suddenly he's in this world in which he's the only person who knows those songs. And there is much, you know, fun knockabout slapstick humour then to be had from him playing um, Let It Be to his parents for the first time and they just keep not listening played by uh, Sanjeev Bhaskar and Mira Sayal incidentally Sanjeev Bhaskar said that the, the the line in that film that um the thing about leave him be Sanjeev said that as far as his memory is concerned he had lived that and then Mira ended up saying it oh, really? so he said this that's Spanish for you that's right there's now a lot of sort of cause of you know who actually did that did that come from I so, think that's my favorite scene I mean that's why I mentioned it in the, in, yeah, in the yeah. interview it's such a great Look, mum and dad, and they're all distracted, and there's other yeah. things going on. I think. Yeah, when the guy answers the phone, oh yes, I'm sitting here listening to listening to Jack's new song. New song. <laughs> start again, lad. Start again, but just maybe start a little bit. on. I've heard that bit three times. So, the setup is, you know, you said it's like a what if movie, and I'm I'm a sucker for those kind of you know those what if things. Partly because on the one hand, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't matter because it's a conceit. So, what if you were the only person? And I also confess that I have many times done that. What if I went back in time and I knew the whole Elvis Costello songbook before Elvis Costello wrote it? And I would then write all those songs immediately, but then you'd have to go and apologise to Declan McManus for the fact that he didn't have a career because you'd written all those songs beforehand. And actually, one of my favourite scenes in the film is when uh, Jack realises that he doesn't remember all of them. He knows that there's this whole body of songs that he can't quite remember. And he's trying to remember how Eleanor Rigby goes. And there's a lot of kind of, a lot of, and, you know, there's a lot of directorial fun with that as well. So I went in knowing the premise, thinking I like the premise, and I'm a total sucker for Richard Curtis, always have been. Um, 
And I like Danny Boyle's filmmaking very, very much. And I thought, firstly, that it has in it, um, you know, really, really likeable, properly likeable leads. So I, I thought Himesh Patel absolutely nailed it as Jack Malley. I, I just believed in his character completely. And I think Lily James as Ellie, I mean, I think she's just a really great, screen presence she's uh, you know she's got that sort of star quality thing she lights up the screen and so immediately you're in the company of these people that you like and a great supporting cast including Sanjeev and Mira Sayal and um you know all these kind of supporting characters and, and incidentally a, a something which is much more than a cameo but, but a, a supporting role by a very very famous part so are we allowed to say who that I mean people have written about it haven't they who the person who plays himself can we say um well, let's not, because in case everyone sees it's in the trailer, but let's pretend we haven't, okay? Well, Ed Sheeran. Yes. Yeah, oh, well, he was in the interview. We talked about Yeah, no, no, I know, I know, but for fun. Okay, so Ed Sheeran plays himself in the thing. And I've yeah. read a couple of things and people saying, oh, he's not very good playing himself. Rubbish. I think he's really good playing himself. I think that's one of the best somebody playing themselves roles I've seen. And bear in mind, you know, you and I have done a thing, a tiny thing, which we played as we, we were great as ourselves. We were great as ourselves, but I think he's really genuinely funny. So, um, I started watching the film and immediately, because I, I like the songs very much, obviously. I mean, I'm not a huge Beatles ball by any means at all, but obviously you know all those songs. And I'm a real sucker for Richard Curtis's kind of... And, and in many ways, there are, for example, there's a sidekick figure who literally could have been transported from Notting Hill straight into the movie. And there's the same kind of slightly bumbling quality to the hero. You know, many of Richard Curtis's heroes have that same that same voice that you can hear. But I started laughing almost off the bat and thinking, I, you know, I, I really like the way the setup's done. I love the way that, as a, as a director, Danny Boyle has that thing about doing that global event, shum, 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 doing it very sort of, you, you understand, fine, you accept it, you move on. And then about 20, 30 minutes in, I started to feel the kind of the melancholia thing, which he's talking about, because obviously the whole thing with the Beatles catalogue is, is absolutely the melancholia. And also, they're now living in a world in which the Beatles don't exist. And there is the question about, is the, is the world more melancholy for the fact that the Beatles don't exist? So I laughed a lot. By the end of it, I could, the, 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 the last 20 minutes or 25 minutes of it, I just, I, you know, I cried um, because I just, you know, I, I, I felt I was in that warm place. I was in that warm, safe place of, I just, I, I really love the conceit. I don't care about the things that don't make sense. There is one scene that we, we won't discuss what it is, but there is one scene that quite simply could have been lifted out in its entirety. And I think the movie wouldn't have lost anything for removing it. Okay, so when people go and sit, they'll know exactly, they'll know exactly what, what we're is. talking about. Yeah. So did, was it that you didn't like that scene or was that, or just that it was irrelevant? I felt that it was the one, the one note that felt like the train going over the, going over the points. It was the one bit that I thought, I don't know why, I don't know why this has yes. to be here. And in fact, I think actually I would rather it wasn't here. But I think it says an awful lot about the, the good-natured, barreling charm of the film that I didn't care. And it is, again, it comes down to that thing that if you are going with a film and if you like a film, it can do a kind of a curve move that you think that's completely all over the place and that what, what you're doing, but you don't mind and you let it go. And it's come back to the thing about... You know, you will you'll you'll forgive your your friends for eating with their hands, but you criticise your enemies for crossing their knife and fork. And I, this film could have eaten its entire meal with its hands tied behind its back and its face in the pudding, and I would have forgiven it because I just loved it. It's not an expression I've ever used. I have to say, um, I entirely agree. And I woke when I, having seen the film, I woke up the next morning troubled by that scene. Yeah, this is our second hour, and if you just joined us, you missed. 
our conversation with Himesh Patel and Danny Boyle talking about Yesterday, which is their new movie. Can I just ask, is it only me who, whenever you hear the word Wimbledon, do you do that thing about thinking of the Ian Dury's, the London, the cab driver's prayer? You know, the Our Father who are in Hendon. I have heard it. I hadn't my, thought of it. My Kingston, I, thy Kingston come, thy Wimbledon. Exactly. Which I like, I Forever was, and ever, Crouch End. Crouch End. <laughs> I, I, I hadn't thought of that, but it is, it is very funny indeed. Six minutes past four. Uh, just on the subject, Danny Boyle said in that interview that the Beatles weren't really criticised by punk, largely because of tracks like Helter Skelter yeah. and Back in the USSR. From the Letters of Note website. Oh, yeah. February the 28th, 1977, manager of the Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren, sent this telegram to the NME. Right. In this, he confirms the sacking of Glenn Matlock from the band. Oh, yes, because he knew... Because of his constant talk of Paul McCartney and the Beatles. Right, this is, the, this is half of the telegram. Mm-hmm. Yes, Glenn Matlock was thrown out of the Sex Pistols, so I'm told, because he went on too long about Paul McCartney. Stop. EMI was enough. Stop. The Beatles was too much. Stop. So, yeah, you know, there was definitely an interview in which he was. I'm I'm changing slightly, but he said he was thrown out for for knowing wonky Beatle chords. There you go. Um, but I get the point that that Danny was making. But it's also absolutely true that all the Pistols' best songs were written by Glenn Matlock, and um, without him, they were but nothing. Claire Murphy in Northumberland. Uh, I was lucky enough to attend a preview screening of Yesterday at the Glorious Home Cinema in Manchester last week. And the splendid Mr Boyle was in attendance afterwards, which made it even more special. As a fan of a rom-com and the Beatles and indeed the films of Mr Boyle, the whole thing... It's a package. Deal, very it? much It's like my cup of milky coffee. I loved the film and was close to tears on a few occasions. Yeah. The sound, as it should be in a film about music, was excellent from the Beatles-style rendering of all the universal titles at the start to the rabble-rousing rendition I really felt it when Jack was involved in the unfortunate incident. Big thumbs up to Mr. Boy- Miss- Miss- Messrs Boyle and Curtis for getting it spot on with what could have been twee and predictable. I didn't expect the thing at the end, which is the thing which is we the were thing talking about, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. Okay. Incidentally, my partner, Paul, the good postman, him out and about, enjoyed it. The first of the Richard Curtis catalogue that I have ever known him to recommend to others in the nine years, four months and one day of knowing him. Well, now that you've got that foot in the door, may I suggest a waltz through the back catalogue? I mean, you know... I get the impression that he has already waltzed through that back catalogue and didn't like him. I get the impression that he wasn't fully his ears weren't open in the same way as me with Neil Young until I had the experience with uh, Heart of Gold you know suddenly you know how can you not like Four Weddings how can you watch Love Actually and not be moved I still think Notting Hill is the finest but you know what I mean about the thing about the Notting Hill sidekick thing there are certain there are are certain Curtis tropes that I'm you know I I love them I'm I'm very happy Uh, Izzard Harsaka could be Isard, but let's go with Isard Harsaka. Wednesday, I sneaked out of the office for a double bill at the Lumiere Cinema in Bruges with Rocket Man at 5pm and yesterday at 8pm. Wow, you did the full, the full double whammy. So on yesterday, this movie was a gift that kept on giving. Easily passes the six laugh test, cleverly addresses the walrus in the room. <laughs> That's good. It is good, isn't it? That's very good. But there's more. Obviously, this is as much a movie about the Beatles as Jaws is about sharks. Yeah. When you allow yourself to discover the true message, then it unlocks a deeper meaning. On my way back to the hotel, I noticed an elderly man 
sitting on a bench, looking at the swans gently floating on the river. You hope that he lives his life in wonder and without regrets. You hope that he has experienced true love and still feels loved by his friends and family. I was overwhelmed by those emotions due to the miraculous surprise in the third act that will stay with me for a long time to come. I can't wait to see my lovely wife again on Friday and give her unlimited supplies of hugs and kisses. So two people well, that's interesting. who got to that particular yeah. moment and they went, no, I'm, I'm yeah. not for this. But I think... I think one of the things about it is, I, I, I think it's a misstep, clearly other people don't, but one of the things about it is that the movie, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a siding on the railway line, isn't it? Yes. The, the <clears throat> railway line can carry on whether it's there or not. And actually that means that even if you think it shouldn't be there, which I do, it doesn't matter because... A sidebar, it, a footnote. It, it is, yes, it is a sidebar, a footnote. It is a, it is a descant. It is a... You know, nice. uh, yeah, thank you. It's a middle eight. <laughs> um, uh, Michael, it's an arc de triomphe. Michael Lindell Anderson in Denmark. I went to see yesterday with mixed expectations. I'm 43, not really a Beatles fan, though 1000% respect and understand their position in music history. But I like Richard Curtis. I like his particular brand of writing. And I love Danny Boyle as a director. Oh, Danny Boyle. I was also wondering if the always great Lily James would do any singing, thus causing many babies to kick with joy in the bellies of expected <laughs> mothers, is a reference to previous emails about Mamma Mia 2. Alas, with mixed expectations came mixed results. The and this, this is an interesting point in this. Okay, part, go ahead. Which I think people <clears throat> will be discussing. Right. The film was the cinematic equivalent of going to a nice enough family gathering only to be seated next to that uncle, who then spent the entire evening ranting about how great the Beatles are. I would what? try the. Well, you'll get it. Hang on. Okay. I would try the occasional. Yeah, I get it. Although I don't really listen that often. I do love a good number of their songs but just not in that way. But the uncle kept on ranting and ranting, offering no actual arguments. The idea that any singer doing the songs of the boys from Liverpool would become the same kind of sensation in today's hippity-hoppity world was <laughs> simply too large a musical pill for me to swallow. And when the film started using the word Messiah about our leading man, I tuned out. I asked the film, yes, but why are the Beatles great? And the film answered, they're the Beatles, which apparently ends that particular debate for some people. Uh, I guess my point is that you have to be that uncle to buy into the fantasy that the film is offering. So I think uh, okay. I've heard other people make the point that if someone came along now and sang all the songs of the Beatles, they would not be treated with the extraordinary excitement. Okay, can I can I uh, counter that? So I think that that uh, firstly, I'm not the world's biggest Beatles fan, although I do understand that in terms of you know pop cultural significance, the Beatles and the Beach Boys are kind of pretty much on a plane. Um, so what I would say is that we we talked before about the ABBA songbook being indestructible and Mamma Mia demonstrating that. You can do what you want. You can put those songs in a nuclear reactor and blow them up and they will still work because, they're, because of the way that they're written. And I think that what um, Yesterday the Film does is it takes those songs and demonstrates that it doesn't matter whether it's somebody sitting in a park with a guitar playing it or somebody, you know, I think the reason that the songs are great is because it doesn't give you the Beatles versions of the songs. It gives you, you know, some like there's a, there's a whole montage when at the very beginning, he's remembered a bunch of Beatles songs and he's trying to remember all the, the way that the Beatles recorded them, including the hand claps with the rubber gloves and all the rest of it. And you see somebody doing essentially fairly shonky versions of the Beatles songs. And it doesn't matter. They are great songs. And there is a reason why, you know, like Streets of London, which is not a song I love, but I understand that it's an indestructible work of art. There is a reason why 
it doesn't matter how you do it. Those songs stand the test of time. And I think that therefore the argument is not um, is not not made. The argument is made that somebody sitting by a piano or somebody sitting by a thing and playing those songs, the songs have an inherent, you know, an internal logic that is indestructible. And one of the scenes that proves it, and I won't spoil the gag by saying, but the bit when he plays the first chords of the long and winding road, and you go and you laugh out loud. You laugh out loud because it's really funny. And I so I think this I think the film does make an argument. There have been enough um musicologists writing essays over the years about why it is that the Beatles songs are great, you know, because they've classical structures and yada yada yada. And it's it's all hooey. It's it, because it's very difficult to describe what it is about. So I know somebody will now say, oh, well, there's a reason why, you know. It's like when they're talking about John Williams scores. Oh, well, the fifth and the sixth, and this means this. But it doesn't matter. In the end, it's a song. And the point is, those songs get played sometimes not very well, and they're still brilliant. Okay. It's just, I think it's an interesting moment. It that, is an interesting that, moment, that, that, but, that, but it's wrong. Where we were culturally in the 60s, they had the impact. It doesn't matter. I mean, did you buy the first Susie and the Banshees album? No. Okay. Well, the end of side one on Susie and the Banshees album is the Banshees version of Helter Skelter. And it could have could have been written in the middle of punk. Have you, you, know? had, have you had the U2 live version of Helter Skelter? Uh, I have, yes. It's pretty good. I think U2 did a good job of attempting to kill it, but even they couldn't. There you go. That's the point. Well, yeah, exactly. That, isn't that's that right, that's right. There you go. The, the, even U2 can't take the magic out of that song. Okay, so anyway, that's <laughs> that'll be yesterday. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate. I, you, I, you understand. I, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm not rising to the bait because no, it's 60 minutes past. You did a very good job of not rising to And it. there are other movies to discuss. Oh, are there? For example. Okay, so for example, also out this week um, is Apollo... Should we do it that way around or should we do it that way? No, let's do that. Let's do, let's do In Fabric first. So In Fabric, which is the new film by Peter Strickland... I'm trying to remember whether Peter Strickland ever came on the programme. Toby Jones came on to talk about Barbarian Sound Studio. He did. did. But did Peter Strickland come on as well? No. Okay, so Peter Strickland is the director of Barbarian Sound Studio and Duke of Burgundy and before that, Kathleen Varga. And In Fabric is his latest, and it is the most Peter Strickland film I have ever seen. What does that mean? Well, I'll describe it. Okay, so... It is a story of um, of a killer garment, a killer dress in the in the mould of I'm Dangerous Tonight. It's January sales at Bentley and Soper's department store. Marianne Jean-Baptiste is looking for something to spice up her life. She has a, a, a fairly tedious job and she lives at home with her teenage son who's being a pain and his vampy girlfriend who she doesn't trust. And she goes into the January sales and she is shown a red dress. The catalogue describes the colour as artery. She's shown a red dress and she's not sure whether she wants it but through the extraordinarily poetic and incantatory and weirdly ritualized sales patter of the assistant she decides that she will buy it and finds herself becoming part of some wider spell and may i interest you in other desired supposes in our exclusive boutique i'm fine for now thank you then i would like you to announce your locus of residence followed by the numbers to your telephone Sheila Wallchapel, 16 Ferndale Road, Thames Valley on Thames, 
Thank you. The pleasure is all mine, Sheila Woolchapel. Adonis will be waiting, and he will compliment you. That's really weird. But, okay, what you hear from that is, firstly, that Peter Strickland is a filmmaker who, who directs films like radio plays with pictures, and, of course, it's not surprising that he actually has, has done um, you know, radio plays. Um, secondly, you heard the music there, which is music by Cavern of Antimatter, who I know you'll be playing all their... All music their, by... Cavern of Antimatter. Cavern. Oh, I see. Cavern. Cavern. I thought that was like one word. What, Cavern of antimatter. Cavern yeah, that's, that's, that's right. of antimatter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, and it's a brilliant soundtrack because it's got that kind of squishy retro feel. There's something in it which kind of reminds me of the John, uh, the, the theme from the Persuaders, and so the whole thing's got this this retro aesthetic. So what happens is. She gets the dress and she takes it home, but she discovers that the dress has designs of its own. See what I did there. And um, the, the dress then starts to wreak havoc in her personal life. And it's a havoc which is continued as the dress passes to different people, one of whom is a washing machine uh, repairman who ends up having to wear it on a stag night and uh, it then passes to his fiancée, played by Hayley Squires. Um, Reg Speaks is played by uh, Leo Bill. So the film is about a garment that has some kind of magical quality, or magical or demonic or whatever it is, passing between people. And so that is very much the I'm Dangerous Tonight story. And it's... The best way of describing it, I mean, it is a film, it's absolutely a film of textures. You can you can hear that in the soundtrack. You could hear that in, in particularly if you were listening to that soundtrack on, 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 you know, on, on headphones. It's a film that's built from the sound up. And as with all of Peter Strickland's films, it's not a film which is best described by reciting the plot, as I've just attempted to do. It's more to do with a kind of sensory mood, a state that the film imbues in you one of the things that happens is that people start reciting things that become incantatory for example you know i'd like you to recite for me the, the numbers of your telephone and then there's a there's a brilliant sequence in which reg speaks the washing uh, the, the washing machine repairman has to start talking about the internal workings of the washing machine and anyone who hears him do this is immediately sent into this kind of ecstatic reverie somewhere between awake and asleep and the whole film plays out like this is the best way of describing it, although it doesn't describe it. It's like Suspiria meets Are You Being Served. Oh, I don't think I could be bothered with that. Why? It sounds dreadful. No, it's not dreadful. Oh, it is. Okay. No, it's not. It is a sort of strange horror-humour hybrid with this absolutely tactile sense to it that's played with this kind of very, very straight face. At times it's very, very funny. At times it's really, really creepy. It's very transgressive. There are... You can read the whole thing as a sort of ironic visual and oral essay on Freud's theories of the origins and meanings of fetishism. Really? Yeah, it's a kind of... It's a film in which, you know, a, a glimpse of stocking is then... Thought of as something shocking. So thought of something shocking. That's why I said it. And and but it's something which is also traumatic, and then replays itself through these strange tableau vivant all the way through. I also thought I saw what, echoes can you of. Remind me what a tableau vivant. You, like a, you know Florence Foster Jenkins. Yes. When they would do the thing, you know, like a live a live statue. You know that they would. That, that they oh, would yeah. And now we present Venus on the half shell, and then the curtains would go back in a tableau mm. vivant, living living portrait. Living oh, I see. Tableau. So not moving, just. Yes, Tableau Vivant. Okay, that's why I asked you about it. Oh, okay, that. fine, and, and I hope that cleared that up. Thank you. Also, there was an element of me. Do you remember the Autons from Doctor Who? 
Remind me. When the shop dummies come to life. Oh, the sh- yes. Yeah, the I shop do. dummies. Spearhead from space. Apologies okay. to the child tree. So there was yes. a bit of the... Yes, exactly. Well done. That's, you're going you're gonna to regret that. When you, <laughs> um, there's a bit of that creepiness that also goes back to, for me, that sort of strange British eeriness of Nigel Neal, that whole kind of creepy, uncanny, eerie sense. And... Uh, that brilliant soundtrack, which I absolutely love and is my favourite thing at the moment, that Cavern of Antimatter soundtrack, which I just I just keep thinking of because it's the best way of describing the film. And it's you you can take it as absolutely preposterous or you can take it as you know deeply profound and twisted i think what it is is deliciously playful i think no one makes films like peter strickland and i think you could see one minute of this film and you'd know exactly that it was a peter strickland film i mean on one level the whole film seems to be peter strickland musing upon the the sort of ecstatic trauma of having been taken to department stores as a child and that weird thing when they're kind of they're big and they're impressive. They're like temples, but they're also strange and creepy because mannequins are strange and creepy. And there are these people sort of moving around, doing things that you don't fully understand. So again, it's like Suspiria. You know, you think you're going to a dance academy, but actually it turns out it's a kind of coven thing going. And there's stuff in it that in the relatively recent past would have passed for extreme cinema, but is now just kind of strange and absurd. And I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And I thought... You know, it's absolutely not for everyone. There is no question that it is. It is Peter Strickland going completely full. You know, you said uh, Hans Zimmer goes full Brahms. Strickland goes full Strickland. And people will lazily compare it to David Lynch, but it's nothing like David Lynch. It's much more like Nigel Neal, Suspiria, Are You Being Served and Doctor Who with added kink. So if that's the kind of thing you're looking looking for for this weekend... You can go. For, you can go and see in fabric. Everyone else will probably go and see yesterday. yesterday. Uh, Jim in London. There's something subliminal going on with in fabric. After watching it on Sunday morning, I was oddly disorientated for the whole day. By way of example, I went to the pub and asked at the bar, "Are you still ordering food?" <laughs> I think I can be forgiven for succumbing to temporary primordial swamp. Yes. Room. In fabric, it seemed to me, transported some EastEnders back to a vintage feature-length Doctor Who story. Oh, just look at that! Co-written by Vincent Price and Spike Milligan, with a Tarantino rewrite and a smashing bit of John Wick 3 thrown in near the end. <laughs> However, my British reserve was somewhat affronted by some of the scenes of a sexual nature, but perhaps these were tropes that needed to be ticked for the genre. By the way, I'm not entirely sure what trope means, but it's one of those words like existential that I can't quite get my head around, but I've heard Mark using it, so I thought I'd give it a bash. Yeah, when we were doing the Secrets of Cinema TV series, Kim Newman said, can we try and do this whole series without using the word trope? And did you? No. Why did you use it then? Because there are just times when it's just... What is a trope? A characteristic... um, uh, Yeah, a, a... a characteristic part of something. So, so for example, a trope of a Beatles song would be a particular chord change that you recognise as being something that recurs throughout the Beatles catalogue. A recurrent motif. Recurrent motif, that's what it is. Jim in London, thank you very much for the email. Uh, You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk, 25 past four. What else have we got? Apollo 11. Oh, good. So last year we had uh, Damien Chazelle's first man, which I said crucially wasn't about going to the moon. Remember this? It's, you know, it's, a, it's an inner space odyssey rather than an outer space odyssey. And I think you agreed with that. It's not a film about space travel. It's a film about grief. Yeah? It's about grief and space travel. Okay, but it's primarily about grief. 
and rattly space travel. And rattly space travel as a, a metaphor for grief. Um, and I said at the time that it reminded me of that brilliant scene from The Ninth Configuration, which is a film I know you've learned by heart, mm-hmm. in which Scott Wilson's astronaut who refuses to go to the moon is asked finally by the psychiatrist, why won't you go to the moon? And he says this thing, he says, see the stars, so cold, so far and so very lonely. What if I got there, got to the moon and couldn't get back? I'm afraid to die alone so far from home. And if there's no God, then that's really really alone and i was talking about first man as being a film that's about that it's about that existential you've lost something and and where do you now fit in the universe and about being really really alone isolated the scene in which he's unable to tell his children that he's going to the moon until his wife says you have to have the conversation with them because you might not come back okay well apollo 11 is about going to the moon it's about other stuff as well but it's about going to the moon and it's um you know because the 50th anniversary is just coming up isn't it it's very very soon so this is uh, todd douglas miller it's a documentary that is built entirely of archive footage so not you know new contemporary interviews it's using stuff footage from the time to tell us and remind us what it was that was at stake in that extraordinary mission and uh the the reminding us just what an epochal moment it was when those three loosed the surly bonds of earth the six minute mark in our countdown for apollo 11 now five minutes 52 seconds and counting booster flight CPSS, verify go for launch CPSS, verify, go for launch. CPSC, verify, go for launch. Booster flight. Verify, go for launch. SRO, verify, go for launch. SRO, verify, go for launch. LM, verify, go for launch. LM, verify, go for launch. Yes, camera. Verify, go for launch. Flight channel two We have some 7.6 million pounds of thrust pushing the vehicle upward, a vehicle that weighs uh, close to 6.5 million pounds. Now, again, I hope that you were listening to this on on headphones. If you weren't, download the podcast and listen to it, because so much of that is to do with the soundtrack. There was a brilliant uh, music track there by uh, Matt Morton, that kind of pulsing, throbby synth sound. In fact, the very first cue in the film, the first music cue in the film, is 11 minutes long, which kind of sets up the drama that's about to uh, to play out. And as we've said before, I mean, I am claustrophobic and I do think the idea of, you know, travelling all that way up to the top of that tower to get into a tiny little tin can on top of what's essentially a massive amount of extraordinarily explosive fuel and then being fired into the air. It, um, even now, I it, it, it fills me with awe and dread and wonder and, and admiration. And as I said, I've been to the the aerospace museum in Washington DC in which they've got one of the capsules that came back and you look at them and you just, you realize how rickety they are. The genius of this documentary was firstly, it's as gripping as any film thriller I've seen uh, recently. I was, absolutely nail-biting and despite the fact that i know how it ends despite the fact that we know that that thing that when they're about to land on the moon the computer is trying to take them into a crater and at the very last minute they kind of you know i think it's that he goes on to manual to override it um despite the fact that we know that they got back you know they got there it happened you know within within this decade as kennedy had said at the beginning and, and they managed to do it but it genuinely fills you with a sense of awe and wonder and astonishment at firstly what science can achieve proper science you know the 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 the, dr- the philosophical dreams of mankind being enabled by scientists working stuff out 
um, is just, it's the kind of perfect synthesis of poetry and science. Secondly, that strange, the, you know, the, the, the spirit of human endeavour, I cannot get my head around what it must be like to be, to have been those people, to have been anybody involved in that first mission to the moon. It just seems, it's just so astonishing. But what the documentary does is it, it's the, 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 the footage which kind of alternates between, you know, footage within NASA and footage, you know, from the from the the, the spaceship, and then footage of people, the, you know, the audience, people watching, people sitting in trailer parks on top of their their RVs, looking up to see the the rocket go up. It just it just brought back what an astonishing achievement it was, and how unbelievably impressive it was that in 1969 people got to the moon and came back alive and uh, and I, the film just reminded me of the of just the, the I was well, you can tell I thought it was really something and and a pretty good cinematic release as far as oh it... yeah I mean I I absolutely thought so not least because the sound is doing so much of the work so right. much of the heavy lifting I know people have got good sound systems at home but if you see that in a I mean I saw it at the screening room at, at Universal Dave Norris's screening room so you know every, turned it up very yeah 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 and I really felt like wow I'm I'm right in there July twenty is the uh, is the anniversary July twenty specific anniversary uh, what are you doing in your next half hour by the way well uh, you're going to be uh, we going to be talking about DVD of the week TV, movie, going, of the TV week. movie of the week yes. and I'm going to be reviewing some other films including Support the Girls uh, and Arifa and Article 15 TV movie of the week in just a second we were doing some Bill Nye spotting earlier because we had a listener who'd spotted him is that a Danny Boyle sequel movie yes, Bill Nye spotting definitely uh, three times a day sometimes uh, Jennifer Ellis says following your previous email I popped out of work in Brighton last month in the sunshine enjoying a late lunch was Bill Nye I was surprised at his choice of restaurant, a familiar, bright and cheap and cheerful Italian. No doubt he was persuaded in his choice of eatery by the restaurant's prominent sponsorship of Brighton and Hove Albion's home dugout. More impressively, he looked more handsome and even more immaculate than in his films, in a beautiful blue suit, unlike most British actors you run into on the streets who look a good ten years older and appear to have slept on a bench. <laughs> Long may his alfresco habits continue. Do I just say you've clearly never met Jason because Jason looks... Absolutely ace all the time, even when he has slept on a bench. And incidentally, he is 10 years older because he's the same age as me. Catherine Bridgman says, I've been listening to your show for a while, uh, having the bad luck and misfortune of not knowing a single other member of the church in person. I've no one to say hello to Jason too, or even to get excited about the next show. I'm endeavouring day by day to change this. I do, however, work in the film industry, all right. as does my partner. Imagine my surprise then when the other night my partner says to me, Oh, I'm working with Jason Isaacs tomorrow. We both watch the wonderful VOA. So at the very least, he's aware of who he is and is impressed with his general acting chops. Yeah. I leapt up in delight. OMG, the Jason Isaacs. <laughs> I squealed. I guess so. Yeah, he responded, somewhat nonplussed. You have to say hello to him, I exclaimed. <laughs> now, given that my partner is a very professional and mature member of the business, he was kind of like, well, of course that's well, all. I will if I get the chance. No, <laughs> no you don't understand. No. You have to say hello no. to Jason Isaacs, to Jason Isaacs. A blank stare. I explained the general concept. Okay, I'll try. The end of the next day comes, and to my utter horror, he reveals that he didn't get time, and there wasn't a good moment. Pathetic. <laughs> it's almost as if he wanted to let him get on with his job like a grown-up and not disturb him or something. Anyway, so in lieu of this failed attempt... 
Could you please give a bit of wittertainment shout out to Jason Isaacs for me and reluctantly for my yet to be converted partner? I love the show, Catherine L- Bridgman. Can I just tell you, uh, last night I was uh, standing outside the Prince Charles Cinema with uh, William Freed. The Prince Charles Cinema, with yeah. not Prince Charles's cinema. I mean, Prince Charles may have a cinema, he but, he, but he, he probably does. He's probably got his own private screening room, but that's not the one I was standing okay. outside because that would have been an arrestable offence. I was standing outside the Prince Charles right. Cinema with William Friedkin, and somebody came past and they went, hello to Jeremy Isaacs, which was very, which was very sharp. And Friedkin said, what? And I said, it's, I, Too I suggest, it's just, <laughs> believe me, we'll be here till Wednesday. TV Movie of the Week, uh, our top production team's picks of the best of next week's telefilms posted on our social channels every Wednesday, including now in a rather snazzy gift-packed Twitter thread. How about that? Libby says, uh, got to be raw. A listener from the other week mentioned a relative taking a pig trotter to a cinema and gnawing on it during the film. I dare anyone to watch raw and be able to gnaw on a piece of meat on the bone ever again. Very good. Saoirse in Bromley. My choices for TV movie of the week. It might be that, Saoirse. You never know. Probably Zoo. Do you think? It could be. Saoirse Ronan is, well, I'm sure it's a very, it's a popular Irish name, isn't it? In Bromley? She might be filming in Bromley. Yeah, oh, okay, fine. In that case, hello, Sir Sharon. My choices for TV movie of the week, probably Zootopia and Raw, but I will be uh, recording The Way We Were and The Ghoul, as I haven't seen any of them before, and they look incredible. Uh, Steve Maxwell on Facebook, it can only be Pride, it should always be Pride. The scene where Bread and Roses is sung is breathtakingly beautiful. It really is. Bethany on our Facebook page, Zootopia is an absolute joyous ride, funny, smart and a gorgeous this emotional Zootopia, which part. we should point out, is the, is the alternative title for Zootropolis. Okay. So Zootropolis and Zootopia are the same film. They had different... I can't Actually, I can't remember which territory had which, but in one... It's either here it was... In, here it was one, and in the States it was the other. So Zootopia and Zootropolis are the same film. Laurie Scott says, in our current social climate, stories such as uh, Pride um, can touch us a great deal and tell us about a great deal about equality, love and respect. Um, special mentions for the incomparable Bill Nye, mentioned again, dazzling Andrew Scott, and still somehow underrated Joe Gilman. The scene in that film in which Bill Nye is, do you remember this? He's cutting the crusts off the sandwiches while he has that, he has the discussion, and it's so low key. It's so brilliantly low key. And he's, you remember that? I do. Uh, and Steph Meadow, I have to say, pride since today is the 50-year anniversary of the Stonewall riots, which started the gay rights movement, and also because it's such a heartfelt and hilarious film. As for Mark's pick, though, given his love for Raw, I'd expect him to say that. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, I'm going to go for a double, double bill, bill, partly because I was just asked recently, you know, in, in light of where we are historically... Um, which is where? Where are we? Historically? Fifty years from? Oh, I see. Yeah, that you. What you just said. Stonewall rights. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm, I thought I, you were making a general comment about the state of the world. No, I was referring to something you literally just said, like thirty just now, seconds ago, and I literally mean literally, literally because now. you literally just literally. did it literally. Just now, that just literally. literally that could have been okay. Right. Yeah. Um, so I am going to go for Pride, not least because I love Pride, and I think you and I both felt exactly the same way about it, that there are absolutely brilliant punch-the-air moments. It's got a fantastic performance by Gorgeous George in the lead role. It's a, a wonderful sort of uh, revisiting of still fairly recent history, and I think it's hilarious that in America there was that attempt to sell it to a different audience on DVD by taking any mention of lesbians and gays out of the lesbians and gays support the minors plot. On the, they somehow weirdly believed, the American distributors, that actually people would just think it was a movie about being proud, 
which is just complete, just the absurdity of it. It just reminds you that even in this day and age, 50 years after, you know, we are still, there is still huge battles to be fought. So I love Pride, but I am also going to go for Raw, Grave, um, because I think that that is one of the most edgy and exciting films I've seen, you know, in the last 10 years. And I think that uh, director Judy Corno is a really brilliant filmmaker. And I remember seeing, because Universal picked it up over here, and I think they might have expected it to do better with a, you know, with, with a bigger cinematic audience, which I don't think it got. But honestly, I have never yet met anyone who has seen Raw and hasn't gone, blimey, Charlie, that is a film and a half. It is, it's the best, it's the best cannibal movie that is not about cannibalism mm, okay when's that on a grave raw is on at a quarter to 11 at night on saturday on film four and pride is on at half past midnight on monday so sunday into monday mark on bbc2 i'm reading this out i know i i got that message uh, tv movie of the week so bad it's bad martin Locke says any other week what a, sele- what, a, what a selection it is eat pray love vomit would take it but i think mark's hatred of sex and the city 2 is beyond compare uh, tony bufton rocky 5 was mostly guilty of being <laughs> dull with an ending that was big on the ante but light on the climax certainly not the worst for that jordan calver i can't make my mind up on rocky 5 at least it goes for a semi-realistic tone, unlike three and four. A shrug emoji. Um, What's a shrug emoji look like? Oh, is that what that is? With the hands up, kind of. I never knew what, what that did you was. Think it was like I a didn't... charismatic worshiper. I didn't. I genuinely didn't know. That's that's a shrug. I use that more than any other emoji. But you okay? Fine. Well, I'm glad you explained to me because you're it's like, right. Whatever you I have, whatevs. Yeah. Welcome to Mike Everest Loserville. says, if we don't get a performance of the Internationale, we riot. <laughs> Jason Farrow, having paid solid attention to Mark and to avoid possible perpetration of further films, I have not seen any of these atrocious movies. But am I not right in saying, did I not read that they are making another Sex and the City movie? Is that, is I that, think that might be right. I heard somebody Jen whisper it. Kilchenman, oh, eat, pray, love every time. I hated it yes. and I do not easily hate. Made it through Italy and I realised I... Still had pray and love to get through. <laughs> Self-indulgent and just irritating. Sex in the City 2 is so bad, but it's bad indeed. But it played in middle America before marriage equality was a federal right, so it had a small redeeming factor okay. in my mind. Uh, so what's the TV movie of the week? So bad it's bad. You know, I think I am going to go for Eat, Pray, Love. Um, I, it, my Obviously, my dislike of Sex in the City 2 is famous, although I recently had a conversation with... Uh, Amara Santi, in which she she did a very sterling defence of of Sex and the City, the first one, as a kind of as a guilty pleasure, and 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 because she's so convincing, I kind of at the end of it, I sort of ended up thinking, oh well, maybe you have got a point, and maybe but, but eat, pray, love, or eat, pray, love, vomit, as I did. I'm very glad that the um that the first emailer did refer to it like that. That is that is its full title. It was just one of those absolutely navel gazing, you know, self congratulatory. Oh, it's all about it's all about loving yourself because learning to love yourself is the greatest. I believe that children are a future. Treat them well and let them lead the way. Is that right? Is that is that the, what we? The greatest love of all is happening to me because the greatest lo- learning to love yourself apparently is the greatest love of all. Did you know that? I actually thought it was learning to love other people, but it turns out that learning to love yourself it's fine. I got there on day one. So you, <laughs> you've always loved yourself. <laughs> We all love you, Mark. No, but it's that thing, is it? Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. It's like, no, it isn't. No, it absolutely isn't. 
learning to be nice to other people is the greatest. Should we start there? Yeah, should we just start there? And if you can love yourself on the way, great. Uh, So we've got 12 minutes left. What are you going to do? Okay, so Support the Girls, which is... uh, a film which came out in America last year. And you remember when I was talking about the fact that Barack Obama had done his list of the yes, films that he had... And the list included some really interesting choices, um, which Eighth Grade was one of them, which was, you know, was a terrific movie. And also Annihilation, which was particularly interesting, because here, I think, was Annihilation the first cream of the streams that we did? Because it was a movie that was theatrically released in America, and then over here it didn't. So I was, the reason I went off mic was I was turning to look at the top production team. Yes, who, who were just, and yes. they are confirming that that is indeed literally listening correct. to Steve Wright in the afternoon. Yes, yeah, and uh, you know it's it's all request Friday at the moment. Um, and so one of the films on his list of favourite films of last year is Support the Girls. And again, I would invite everybody to just imagine a world in which the President of the United States was able to draw up a, a list of films that were his favourites of the year that included, you know, diverse, interesting, smart choices that, you know, that demonstrate that you are a sentient and empathetic human being. Anyway, so well done. Yes, interesting. Um, so the, this is, it's, a, it's an independent movie. It's written and directed by Andrew Bujelski or Bujelski with a J, I think. Let's say Bujelski, but as we all know, my pronunciations are terrible. It is a refreshingly honest, I hate this word, dramedy. It's a drama with comedic elements. And I, I, I don't think I'll ever get my head round saying dramedy. So it is, it, it is a drama. You with don't comedy. have to use it. No, I'm not going to in that case. A comic drama or a drama with comedic elements about women juggling complex home lives with working in double whammies, which is described as a sports bar with curves. So it's a bar in which the drinks and the food are served by relatively scantily clothed women. But the whole point is this is a family establishment. And although it's got you know that side to it, it is being run by somebody who absolutely believes that what we're doing is serving the mainstream. And there is it. So it's seeing um, a different side of what you would expect that thing to be. It's the kind of establishment which if you if it turned up in a film like Porky's or, you know, one of those, uh, you know, American frat teenage uh, movies would be the kind of place where just everybody pours beer over their heads and behaves disgusting but this is actually like what would it be like to work in one of those bars here's a sequence in which uh, Regina Hall who is the person who is who is in charge of uh, she doesn't own it but she's in charge of the establishment is attempting to explain what life is like there to some new recruits do you get like grabbed it happens yeah like when someone's super wasted or whatever but it's pretty rare and you can usually tell when something like that's coming you know and just kind of like you know <laughs> let me just say this uh we have a zero tolerance policy on it you know i don't mind calling the cops if customers commit the crime of sexual mm-hmm. assault and trust me i don't have to call far because you know what we have a lot of officers who are regulars and officer dominguez is a cutie i think Uh, But seriously, y'all, let me just say, the most important thing is that this is a mainstream place, you know, and it's a family place, which means a lot of families come here, and it also means that we're all family. And yeah, you're not, you know, you're not wearing a a whole lot of clothes, but trust me, if these guys wanted to go to a strip club, they know where to find them. They just come here so some sweet girls can take good care of them. It's like like working at at Chili's or Applebee's, except it's more fun and the tips are way better. Usually, if you know how to work it. So the other voice you heard there is uh, Hayley Lou Richardson, who I think is is really terrific. And um, essentially, I mean, structurally, it sort of 
not dissimilar to a film, although it's very different in tone, to a film like Car Wash or a film like Clerks, in which the whole thing is, you know, there's there's the workplace where everybody comes, you come in the beginning of the morning, the stuff plays out, and we see everybody's different lives interact. Do you remember when Car Wash came out in the cinema? I mean, the thing that everyone remembers about Car Wash is the disco soundtrack. And in fact, there is a car washing sequence in Support the Girls, although as I said, it's a very, very different film. But it's a film about a work environment which is a difficult work environment, but everybody's got their own things that are going on. There's one of their friends, colleagues, has got this, got into trouble for, uh, with a, an altercation with a boyfriend who's an obnoxious so-and-so at the beginning. Uh, they find that somebody has attempted to break into the establishment. And during the course of the day, different customers come in and either behave well or don't behave well and are our cast our, our key characters have to deal with them and whilst they're dealing with them we get to learn about their lives and i i really liked it for a number of reasons the first one is it is funny i mean there are there are really sort of good smart laugh out loud uh, moments in it but much more importantly than that it's both sympathetic and empathetic it does that thing that all really good drama does which is it puts you in the position of a character that you that you may not you know, ever. I mean, certainly from my point of view, I would never be in the in the position of any of the characters. Um, uh, because I'm wrong gender and I live in the wrong country. But you absolutely feel, oh, I'm seeing the world through their eyes, and I understand that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it's one of those things that demonstrates that true comedy, true proper comedy, is not cruel. Proper, really, really sharp comedy is to do with with empathy and sympathy and engagement. And I do think that sometimes we kind of forget, I mean, as I said, it is a drama with a comedic side to it, but sometimes we forget because we get so used to the idea that comedy has to be, you know, gross out or abrasive or whatever, that there is such a thing as, you know, that empathetic warmth that you get from a really well-observed human comedy. And I, you know, if you look back at things like, you know, both Ken Loach and Mike Lee are filmmakers who employ comedy and do so rather brilliantly, but you don't think of them as being... I mean, I mean Ken Loach, uh, Mike Lee once said, all I want to do is make people laugh. You know, I'm a clown, that's what I want to do. But you think of his films as being that kind of social realist thing. And this has a similar thing. The guy who, do, who made it uh, made Computer Chess, which was a film that I, that I really, really loved. And as I said, it's, a, it's that basically simple structure, the workplace in which disparate people are coming in. All of them have got their own lives. All of them have got their own situations. There is a real feeling of, I mean, they keep talking about, as you heard in that clip, it's like a family. We all look after each other like a family, but it's also a workplace. It's a place in which it's possible for people to be, um, to be mistreated or to be exploited. And, and I, I just... I felt like, although it's, it's a fairly short movie, it's not, you know it's not overly long and it's done on a on a very sort of stripped down. It's not it's not special effects and car crashes and all the rest of it. There are scenes in which they leave the central workplace, but I, I it was it was so unexpected. It was so I mean the the only thing expected about it was I knew that it had turned up on Obama's list, so I kind of knew okay, well it's gonna you know it's gonna have some validity because. His choices of movies are really good. I loved it. I thought it was really, really terrific. And it's called um, Support the Girls. And you might have to seek it out at your local art house cinema. It's not going to be playing everywhere. But it's it's really sharp and really funny and really great performances and characters. that You know that thing about when you see a movie and it's got characters that you absolutely believe in. You feel like you've known them forever. And, uh, you know, that's... And that's what the cinema can do. That I'm sure theatre does it well. But this—that's what this did for me. And it's called Support the Girls. And I think everybody should go and see it because I thought it was fab. It's five minutes to five. How many films do you want to fit in before we finish? Uh, I'll, ju- I'll do. 
I'll do two, but I can do them quite briefly. Have you got some emails? No, well, I've got loads, but you do the... Okay, I'll, 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 I'll run through this. So Article 15, which is um, it's kind of tough drama written and co-directed by Anubhav Sinha, who made uh, Mulk based on a horrifying real-life case set in Uttar Pradesh, um, <clears throat> an office... I mean, not based on, inspired by a horrifying real-life uh, case. It has two main concerns, the caste system and the mistreatment of women. Um, our central character, played by Ayushman Karana, um, is uh, a, an officer who arrives in a village where there is a case of missing girls that nobody wants to have investigated. Everyone wants him to drop it, but he won't. And because he won't drop it, all these things start to be revealed about the society and the corruption of the society and the prejudices of the society in which this whole drama has played out. And as I said, the two central concerns of the drama are the the way in which the caste system differentiates between different groups of people and also this kind of inherent violence against women which is being played out in the story of the of the missing girls it's a strange film sometimes the plotting gets a little bit confused and unfocused um there is a subplot with our main player's relationship with his partner which sometimes seems superfluous and particularly considering the relationship to a horrifying real-life case. The, 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 the drama itself is never subtle, and I think there are times that it, when it f- turns into a sort of full-on thriller, it, there are things about it that, that ring sort of slightly untrue. But it is, it's, it's solidly done, and I think it is made with, with, a, with a degree of uh, passion and commitment, and it's very uh, handsomely shot by Ewan Mulligan, and it's called uh, Article 15, and that's out today. Also out today, again, harder to find, a small release called Arifa, which is uh, Sadia Said's debut feature. Um, and uh, Sherman Hassan is, this, Hassan is this young woman whose life appears to have come adrift. She's caught between a number of unsuitable or unstable relationships with men. Her family life is fraught with conflict and hidden secrets which reveal themselves through strange subplots during the course of the drama. Um, she visits a psychotherapist to talk you know, about what's going on in her life. She's trying to write, but she's told by her mentor that her her work is is underdeveloped and trite and that she's you know she's not writing in the way that she, that she should do or that she wants to and it's a strange drama it sort of wanders very casually from one scene to another often with a sense of kind of disconnect that you're you're you, you keep thinking it's going it's going to find its its right walking pace it's you're going to you're going to be able to follow where the narrative is going but it it doesn't really there are certain elements of the plot that seem to be the plot mechanism, but they're always actually secondary to the real meat and potatoes of it, which is that it's a character study. It's about this particular character. And I think that what's interesting is that the central character, the titular character, manages to be engaging without necessarily being likeable. There are things about her that are that are very very off-putting in terms of the relationships that she has with other people and it does demonstrate for me that thing about you don't have to be likable to be engaging in terms of the character not in terms of the, the performer but in terms of the character itself i think the film itself uh struggles dramatically some of the performances are, are, are somewhat off the note uh nice soundtrack by mike linder who i think was in level 42 he's in level 42 a sort of nice piano soundtrack so a, a rather uncertain drama but with a solid central performance and we we may see more in the future uh, now um we we need to explain a little bit about next week because okay. wimbledon is on which is always a very exciting thing so but and it's on at the same time as us we're so we're okay. going to be live streamed 
Right. So you will be able to hear us if you live stream. The podcast will be available uh, as normal. Elsewhere, it will be full coverage of Wimbledon, as you would expect. Right. Um, but anyway, this has been a uh, something else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, when we're live streamed and podcast, Will Poulter will be here to talk about Midsommar. Midsommar. Which is a horror film which Midsommar. I have seen and sat through. What is your movie of the week? Can I have a double bill? Go or on. do I have to have one? Your choice. Okay, I'm going to have a double bill. My movies of the week are Yesterday and In Fabric. Well, well done, Mark. I thought uh, thought we were I thought we were rocking there. You see, there really is no point in pretending now because you've already done the thing about the thing comes before the thing and the what's it. No, but that was all. I thought that was good. You know. Yeah, but but we haven't done it yet, Simon. That's the point. And you've already told people, so now all they can hear is the sound of your, you sincerely lying. But it was still good. It's not lying. Well, it, it's a statement of. One, faith, two, prophecy. Faith and prophecy. Together. Right, you've gone full biblical, right? It's a statement of complete confidence in the in the production team and the show and our fine engineers. Look, right. we've got the greatest studio management talent that it's possible to get of of, of, of our listeners. It's a statement of confidence in, in Britain. <laughs> and onwards. Yeah, because we can. Ha, ha, ha. So that's what it is. And also... Yes, if you just say it loud enough with some it's jokes, prophetic. It's everyone prof- will believe it's it. prophetic. Yeah. Uh, that's what it was. It's pathetic, but... <laughs> no, prophetic. Anyway, it's very good. It's, now, pro- it's, pro- it's poetic, political. We've got DVD of the week coming up in just a moment. However, we all, there's something that we haven't done for a while, mm-hmm. and a number of people just like to hear the jingle anyway. Yes. So shall we do our Cream of the Streams? Cream of the Streams. Okay, here we go. World Wide Web. Megabits and megabytes. Information superhighway. Ouch. Buffering. <laughs> da, Dream da, da. of the streams. <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs> I like the full version of that. I like the 12-inch mix. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's banging, isn't it? What are we talking? What, so, what is banging um, this week? So, Anima, which is a solo album by uh, Thom York, you know from Radiohead. I know him, Thom. And um, uh, so, it's the title apparently refers to you know Anima, the Carl Jung thing. And no, it's Anima. It's the there's the Carl. It's it, Anima and Animus, isn't it? I mean, I'm I'm I, I'm Animatatum, Animatatorum, Animatis. Animatatum for all the rest of your life. It means that is that again. It's Hakuna Hakuna Animatatum. That's what it's called. The new Thom York album is it's called Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. Followed up Suspiria. He has doing the Lion King. He has. But it's interesting that you mentioned Suspiria because there is a this fifteen minute film by Paul Thomas Anderson, which premiered I think for one night only on uh, of some big IMAX screens, but is now on Netflix. And it's it's like a short film with uh, three ch- tunes from the new uh, uh, banging uh, album, uh, not the news traffic and dawn chorus, and it's basically a sort of a, a, a dance art installation piece which is choreographed by um, Damien Jallet, who worked on Suspiria, on the remake of Suspiria, in okay. which you thought the choreography, I think you thought this quite rightly so, the choreography was the very right, best yeah. thing about the film. So um, it's a 15-minute short. It starts with uh, Thom on the... I know I know it's Tom, but I just can't stop saying that now because... It, it is quite annoying now, so just, let's just stick with... You might as well say Tim. Yeah. As in Elton John It starts with Tim. Tom Rice. On a... Tra- <laughs> 
uh, on a train and everyone in the carriage is sort of falling is falling asleep but as they fall asleep it's kind of like a like modern dance version of falling asleep so there's this very kind of interesting thing about them all you know you know when you're sitting on i do this all the time you're sitting on the train you fall asleep and then you jog your head forward. yes so it's like a dance that's inspired by that and then he catches the eye of uh of another passenger um, who is played by the Italian actress Diana Roncion, Roncion. and uh, then she leaves a bag on the train and then he follows her to try and give her the bag back and then there's this whole kind of Buster Keatney section in which he can't get through the crowds of people or like maybe Chaplin inspired which can't get through the crowds of people and then the whole thing turns into this kind of strange dreamscape almost like you know that bit at the end of Brazil when um, the Harry Buttle Tuttle character goes out and gets completely covered in newspapers and then disappears and everything starts to become sort of you know wonky and strange and there's this really really strange section in which it's obvious it looks like it's filmed on a hill but on the flat so everybody appears to be walking into wind so anyway it's a dance piece it's basically an art dance piece with those three songs starring and you know music performed by tom york and directed by paul thomas anderson and i only saw it on netflix when i'd love to have seen it projected actually because it looks absolutely beautiful as indeed do all paul thomas anderson's things and uh, i thought it was really interesting i was casting my mind back to um julian temple's jazz in for blue jeans video do you remember that when david bowie's jazz in blue jean came out julian temple made a little short film i think it was 16 minutes long that went out as a support film with was it absolute beginners and it had like a narrative mm-hmm. do you remember this and it had a okay well it was it was there was a point when there were a number of sort of narratively inflected rock videos pop videos but they were almost like short films i think abc did man trap didn't they i think that was a kind of similar there was a point in which people were making videos that had a sort of narrative element. in this there's no dialogue we're talking it's all told through the through the medium of dance and music and you know i mean i'm a huge fan of paul thomas anderson anyway so it's not surprising that i sat there thinking i really love watching but partly because we were talking about that film mary the just last a couple of weeks ago and i was saying what i really like about it is it's telling the story through dance and although i don't i know nothing about dance and i can't dance either i've got no you know i'm a, i've got no sense of natural sense of rhythm but i love watching dance and i love like one of my favorite films is the powell and pressburger version of the red shoes and i love anything that's that's telling its story physically and through narrative so for me it was kind of like oh, okay fine this is this is plus i'm I, you know i love radiohead i haven't i'm not a huge devotee of, of Tom York's solo work, not because I don't like it, because I haven't heard most of it. But actually, I thought it was very interesting. And where where can I see on this Netflix? It's, that's why it's Cream of the Streams. It's on Netflix. It's, on Netflix. it's a Netflix <clears> presentation, <throat> and I said I'd like to have seen it on a, on a big screen because I can imagine there are certain scenes in it, like there's this bit when he's moving through all these bodies that are kind of crawling along like beetles, and I imagine that on the big screen, it's almost weirdly enough, you know that bit in Inception when the corridor goes wonky and gravity goes up, there are bits in it that are almost like that in terms of the way in which they, the, the gravitational forces that appear to be working okay. are, and it's got light installations. And I thought it was, you know, it was regular. And bear in mind, I'm not somebody who's got a huge tolerance for pop videos because I started watching pop videos in the 1980s when it all consisted of Ultravox standing around amidst a lot of dry ice with a robot drinking a martini. And I just always thought, yeah, and... You thought, that means nothing to me. Exactly. <laughs> oh, uh, Glenn Miller. Thank you. Which brings us neatly, precisely, on time to the DVD of the week. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. Whatever happened to the reconnaissance, eh? Serenity happened, that's what. 
Yes, you remember. He must get the fish. He must swim naked in the sea. You said it was unbelievably silly, preposterous tosh of the highest order. Yes. And then the twist. Or rather, what's the opposite of twist? Straighten. Yes, it's a twist. So untwisty, it's a straightener. It's when things take a highly expected turn. <laughs> Hello there, I'm the twist from Serenity. Hello. That's me wearing a sequin mankini shouting down a bullhorn. I'm the enormous twist, which everyone knew about in the first ten minutes. <laughs> that one. Yes. What is that? Paul Green says, I would pick Vox Lux as it's an absorbing look at a pop star's downfall and a use of image to climb back up. Dark and stunning cinematography. One of my highlights of the year. Mark will go for Fwumf. Uh, Alex Miller, the kindergarten teacher. No one is calling fighting with my family. The kindergarten teacher was a masterclass and fully expect that to be the pick. Serenity is the biggest pile of excrement that has graced the screen in recent times. Richard Taggart Adams, or even Target Adams, Mark will pick Fwumf as it's heartwarming and he's a big softy deep down. Ross Byrne must be Vox Lux for the Scott Walker soundtrack and Lynchian Strangeness. Anna Hosey, it's got to be Fighting With My Family. Such a feel-good film, I almost got up and applauded at the end. Excellent performances from all the cast, including The Rock. Funny, sad, uplifting, what's not to love. What is our DVD of the week? Well, I, I am going to go for... F- 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 how are you saying it? For f- But I'm also going to make it a double bill with The Kindergarten Teacher, because The Kindergarten Teacher was really not seen by many people at all. And although it, it's, you know, it's a remake... Um, it's, it's fairly he's fairly close to the to the original I think it's really good and I think Maggie Gyllenhaal is terrific in it and they made that movie for no money at all and it's more dramatically satisfying and rich than movies that cost a hundred times as much so fumph not least because oh, oh it's, it's got a word oh, yeah, starring Florence Pugh who you have enjoyed recently in Midsommar yes more Midsommar. on that more on that next week and Kindergarten Teacher very good Excellent. Do they say, do they, in the film, I haven't seen it yet, no plot spoilers, do they say, it's Midsommar? Well, no, not really. I mean, you know how it's written, so you know it's Midsommar. I mean, it's obviously just they're doing the little Scandi thing. What with it being in Scandi and everything. <laughs> Is it in they, don't, they don't make a big thing about it being Midsommar. Midsommar. To be honest, there are so many other things they're going on about. Right, they, <laughs> that, that becomes an irrelevance. You don't really care. Okay. Will it play on a double bill with Devika Man? Midsommar and Divikaman. That would be most entertaining. <laughs> In which case, I would definitely show Divikaman <laughs> second. <laughs> you just sounded like a Muppet doing it then. Anyway, that's, no, I tell you what you sound like that. You sound like that bit in When Harry Met Sally when he says, I have decided that we are going to talk like this. Well, that, wait up, there is too much pepper in my paprika. But I would be willing to partake of your pecan pie. Your pecan pie. I think I've had quite enough of this. BBC Radio 5 Live. It's the greatest festival on earth. But if camping isn't for you, or you want to relive your favourite moments, BBC Sounds has got it covered. How you guys feeling? This one's a special one just for you. With live sets, music mixes and interviews across the weekend and available right up until the end of July, you can experience Glastonbury over and over again. So the aim of the game tonight is to lose our voices. Glastonbury 2019. Listen on BBC Sounds.